Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down in the world today. I hope everybody is feeling safe. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is doing what we need to do to get back to some type of normal sooner rather than later. Listening to the scientists, listening to to the doctors, listening to those who know what they're talking about. Don't listen to Dr. Oz. Don't listen to Dr. Phil. Don't listen to Dr. Drew. Don't listen to Dr. Snoo. Don't listen to Dr. Flu. Don't listen to Dr. Cootie Too Too. Listen to the folks who know what they're talking about so we can get back to some type of normal, which is stay indoors, which is maintain a certain distance to maintain a certain number of folks that you can hang around with. Please, y'all, let's be safe. Come on, we can do this. Keep it going. We still got a little bit of ways to go, but remember the payoff down the road is going to be worth it when we don't have to repeat this for a longer period of time if we just remain responsible, mature, and do what we're supposed to be doing. On the podcast today, what I'm going to be talking about, mainly basketball, y'all. I'm also, I got to take a break from the NFL draft. The next podcast that I'll be doing, I'll focus back on that in terms of what's going down. But you know, I hit the Tua situation. I hit the Joe Burrow situation. The rumors and the innuendos, what's going on. I told you what my Washington Snyder skins are supposed to be doing, what they need to be doing. The risk and the reward of taking Joe Burrow. The risk and reward of taking Tua Tunga Bailoa. I think I've hit every single avenue that we can go down in terms of what's going to be happening. And when you're talking about other things like the other teams drafting in the first round, what's all the crapshoot. So I'm going to leave that for another time. I'm going to be talking about that once the draft is over. We can sit back and kind of evaluate what's going to be happening. Because really, as you know, when you start talking about the draft picks and who won the draft and who did the greatest and who did the worst and all those things, we really can't go ahead and make that assumption. We really can't go ahead and make that call until two or three, four or five years down the road. So Joe Burrow's going to be the first draft pick of the Cincinnati Bengals, and everybody's going to be sitting up there talking about, oh, yeah, man, we got the number one pick in the draft, Joe Burrow. This guy's going to be like Tom Brady, this guy in LSU. Did you see how he played? And, oh, my goodness, this guy is so smart. He's such a leader. And now the Bengals are going to be coming out of purgatory, and now they're going to be a team in the right direction because they got that defense with Carlos Dunlap and Gino Atkinson. They've got A.J. Green as a weapon, and, oh, my goodness gracious, and, You know, it happens all the time because mainly when you're talking about the worst team in the draft, drafting number one, they're going to get the best players nine times out of ten, not only just in the first round, but also in the second and third round. So on paper, when it just happens, the day after, 24, 48 hours, you you take a look at the quote-unquote draft winners and losers, about 90% of the time is always the team with the number one draft pick, because that automatically means that they have the number one draft pick in the second round and sometimes the third round. So, of course, on paper, the worst team and the second worst team that was selecting is going to be, quote-unquote, killing it in the draft in terms of how they did. But you really don't know. How do we know that Joe Burrow is not going to turn into a Blake Bortles? How do we know that Joe Burrow is not going to turn into a Jamarcus Russell? Well, 
despite the fact that I don't think that Joe Burrow is a is a addictive knucklehead like Jamarcus Russell was. But you talk about all the other quarterbacks that have been drafted, whether it was Tim Couch or whether it was uh, Joey Harrington, whether it was um, the kid from Notre Dame. I mean, all of these guys who were supposed to be the franchise quarterbacks now are it turned out to be busts. How do we know that Joe Burrow is going to turn out to be either like Blake Bortles or someone like a Tim Couch or maybe someone who's going to turn into a Peyton Manning type. So we're going to have to just kind of, for me, I'm just going to kind of like, again, discuss the picks when they happen on my next podcast. But as for now, the NFL, I'm leaving that alone. I am going to be discussing, though, on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. I am going to be discussing the premiere of the show that happened on Sunday night, the first two episodes of The Last Dance, taking a look at the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls. Some of the things and some of the highlights that I took away from the first two episodes. Number one, it was interesting because, you know, I, I lived through it. If you're of my generation, if you're of my age and even 5, 10, 15 years, even younger, you remember the Michael Jordan Bulls. You remember the 90s. If I'm old enough to remember Michael Jordan as a freshman in and uh, and in college, I remember him. I, for years, I had Michael Jordan's opening game of his career against the then Washington Boulet or the Washington Bullets, where the Chicago Bulls won. Orlando Woolridge had a great game that game. But even in that situation, well, I think Jordan scored 14 points because I had that on VHS. I taped. I used to tape all the NBA games, especially when the Washington Bullets were playing, because you got to remember, this was the age when you're speaking about 1984, where you didn't have cable, where you didn't have the internet, where you didn't have NBA TV, where you didn't have TNT as such. So every single game that came on WDC, WDCTA television, Channel 20 in Washington, D.C., that carried the Washington Bullets games. At the time, me being a great love of, lover of NBA basketball and wanting to be playing in the NBA for the L.A. Lakers, being the partaker playing for the L.A. Lakers, every Washington Bullet game, every, you know, every game like that, I was going to record. So at the time, I wasn't recording this game with Chicago and Washington because I was like, ooh, here comes the start of the greatest basketball player, arguably, who ever lived. I can't believe it. If you remember at the time coming into the NBA, Michael Jordan was not the Michael Jordan that we all know and love. Michael Jordan's first game coming into the league. Michael Jordan's even first couple of weeks coming into the NBA and participating in the NBA. Not too many people were sitting there talking about, yeah, this guy's going to go down as one of the greatest basketball players of all time and one of the top two or three basketball players of all time because i got to give my respect to guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and LeBron James and Bill Russell's and, other, and others. So, But basically, as far as being in the greatest of all time category, no one thought that Michael Jordan coming into his rookie year for the Chicago Bulls was going to turn into the player that he became. So I was taping the game because I was a Washington Bullets fan and I just wanted to tape anything where as far as basketball is concerned because I wanted to see some move. I wanted to see some plays. I wanted to see something where I could become a better basketball player. In 84, my man was Bernard King. As far as the NBA was concerned, my man was Len Bias. As far as basketball was concerned, my man was Patrick Ewing and anybody else who went to Georgetown University at at the time, my, my focus wasn't on Michael Jordan. So that game, I think he had 14. And if you remember, because I know you don't, but I remember the star of that game for the Orlando, for what, for the um, Chicago Bulls was Orlando Woolridge. I think he had like 30. Jordan had like 14. But also, Jordan in that game, he wasn't even the best rookie 
Danny Green, the number one pick for the Washington Bullets. I think he had 12, 14, 16 points in his debut as a, as a Bullet, 6-7 forward from Wake Forest. So that's the one thing I remember was that, yeah, Jordan had some nice moves, and yeah, Jordan did some nice things, but for the most part, many people were focusing on the fact that Orlando Woolridge had a good game and how the Bullets had a bright future because Kenny Green looked like a player that could really help the squad. Little did we know the directions in their careers that both Kenny Green and Michael Jordan took. So it was just interesting to me kind of taking back and going back down memory lane and thinking about all this stuff and watching the first two episodes of the last dance. They kind of went back and forth in terms of they went up to the 97-98 season and then for some, for some background information, they went back and mainly was focusing on Michael Jordan's beginning growing up in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, North Carolina and playing basketball and him and his brother Larry having those fierce basketball one-on-one battles where the winner or the loser would basically start fighting each other and Jordan talking about, you know what, he got his competitive fire. He got that maniacal fire to compete from playing one-on-one against his brother when he was young and also trying to earn the admiration and love of his father because he was a guy, as far as Jordan was concerned, Michael Jordan, he was a guy that he wasn't the favorite of James Jordan, the father. And wasn't it interesting to see him speaking? Because for those who don't remember, James Jordan was murdered uh, I believe back in 1993, he pulled off to the side of a road at late at night looking to get some sleep, and two punks, two pieces of shit, went up and shot him, um, killed him, dragged his body and threw him into the uh, creek there. And that was, I think, one of the reasons why Jordan retired the first time. Too much of the fame and fortune and, and publicity and spotlight coming down on him, and the fact that his father died also weighed heavily on him, and he was just kind of burned out, so he needed that little 18-month vacation to get himself recharged, find his love of basketball again, and come back and competing with the, with uh, Jordan, uh, with the Chicago Bulls for the second time. But the thing was that it was just interesting to hear these interviews with James Jordan. But yeah, one of the things that made Michael Jordan such a great player was the fact that of his competitive fire, which was which was nurtured because of his yearning to be accepted to be as loved as his older brother Larry was for his father's affection and attention. So it was interesting to uh, to go back to that. So kind of remember that situation, and then they talked about uh, him getting cut from his varsity team, the varsity basketball team at Langley High School um, when he was a sophomore. And I always found that, I always found that story kind of humorous. Because really, if you think about it, for those, let's say, 85 to 90 percent of those who played play basketball in high school, normally you have four levels or you have three levels. When you're a freshman, you play for the freshman team. When you're a sophomore, you play for the JV team. And then when you're a junior or senior, you play for the varsity team. When I was coming up, when I was playing basketball there in the 80s. I mean, that's the way it was. When you were a freshman, you played on a freshman team, or if you were good enough, you moved up and played on the JV team, and then your sophomore year, you played on the JV team, and then then again, your junior and senior year, you played on the varsity team. So getting cut as a sophomore from the varsity team, it, it wasn't that horrible. There were a few players when we were coming up that were actually good enough to play as sophomores on the on the varsity team. I mean, you had to be really, really, really good. So I always found that 
I always found that story kind of amusing and kind of overblown. I'm not like he got cut from his varsity team when he was a junior. Or it's not like he got cut from the junior varsity team when he was a sophomore. He got cut from the varsity team when he was a sophomore. So let's just calm down a little bit. But, the, but that kind of fueled him. He was upset. He was crying. His mother was upset. And she just told him. His father told him, hey, look, you know what? Don't quit. Don't give up. I know you're frustrated. But you know what? Just go out and play harder, work harder, practice harder. And he dedicated that year between his sophomore and his junior season to go out. And he went from being not good enough to play to make the varsity team as a sophomore to coming back his junior year and being one of the best guards in the whole entire nation. In fact, that was one of the reasons how North Carolina, according to the documentary on Sunday, that was one of the first first things that the North Carolina Tar Heels, in terms of knowing about Michael Jordan, I mean, there was the rumors and there was stuff going around that there's this kid in, in, um, in um, North Carolina that's supposed to be really good. You should invite him up to camp. But what's his name? His name is Mike Jordan. Not even Michael Jordan at the time, Mike Jordan. And he went up to the uh, University of North Carolina summer basketball camp and left there. And those guys were like, yeah, we need to have this guy. As Roy Williams said, I think I just saw the best high school guard that I've ever seen in my life. I think that was the phrase that Roy Williams used to describe Michael Jordan at that time. Isn't it interesting? I, I don't even know, really, if you think about it right now. I remember years and years and years I went to a Lefty Drizel's basketball camp, sleepover camp at Maryland, and I know that John Thompson had a Georgetown basketball camp. And it's just interesting to see how prevalent those camps were. I don't know if they're still around or I don't know how much weight that they hold right now, but a really good tool for those guys to recruit when they had their summer camp. So basically Jordan went down there, was unbelievable, and that's when North Carolina got heavily recruited with them, and Dean Smith offered them the scholarship, and he came on as a freshman, and the rest is history in terms of what he did in the 1983 championship game against Georgetown, which I'm not really going to talk about because here we are 38 years later. It's still too painful for me to talk about. You know what's interesting about that? It's the fact that here I am, as I mentioned before, 38 years later, and still, still, when that shot comes on, when the cross-court pass is thrown over to the left side and Jordan rises up to shoot that 17-footer, I immediately either change the channel, or I change the channel on the pass, or if I'm in company or with, and don't have the ability to do that, I turn my head or I close my eyes. I can't, I can't watch it. Still too painful. 38 years later, of all the bullshit that I've gone through in my life, still, 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 Way too painful to see Jordan hit that shot. I've only seen that shot maybe two or three times, even though it's being replayed time after time after time. I will not, I refuse to go ahead and to watch that shot again by Michael Jordan against my Georgetown Hoyas at the time with Eric Sleepy Floyd and Patrick Ewing and Gene Smith and Ed, Ed Spriggs and Billy Martin and Anthony Jones. And now oh, we should have won that fucking game. The star of that game, really, if you uh, want to know, was James Worthy. James Worthy was the reason why North Carolina won that game. He was fucking unstoppable. I think he had like 30 points. That was a, that was a hell of a game, man. When you're talking about Carolina had Matt Doherty and, and Sam Perkins and Mike Jordan and Jimmy Black and James Worthy as a junior and Georgetown had Sleepy Floyd and Fred Brown and Patrick Ewing and Ed Spriggs and, and Eric Smith. I mean, hell of a game. Hell of a game. And boy, did I cry something fierce that night when Georgetown lost. But I digress. But basically, the... The, the legend of Michael Jordan, when Mike Jordan all of a sudden became Michael Jordan, 
was when he hit that shot against the uh, Georgetown Hoyas, even though, again, the best player on the floor that night was James Worthy. But when you talk about the transformation or you talk about the improvements, just like Jordan from his sophomore year to his junior year in high school, the improvement that he made from his freshman year in high school to his sophomore year where you, know, you had guys like Buzz Peterson on the team and Jimmy Black had gone and James Worthy declared early for the NBA. So he left after his junior year. So coming into his sophomore year, it was really time for Mike to step up and become one of the leaders of the team. And he far exceeded those expectations. And uh, this junior year became the national player of the year. He had an awesome Olympics and there you go. And then he came in with a lot of hype. But uh, so basically part of the documentary, at least the first episode of the documentary was to speak about, give the background of the rise of Michael Jordan. And like I said, I, I remember Mike Jordan when he was a freshman in college, but then again, he was just another guy. I mean, at that time, you're speaking about guys like Ralph Sampson and James Worthy and some really, really Othello Wilson for Virginia and some really, really great players. You're speaking about the King brothers from Maryland and Buck Williams and those guys and Lefty Giselle. So, I mean, the ACC at the time, you're speaking about, you're talking about a stacked, stacked, stacked league. You're talking about guys who stayed two, three, four years. Don't be fooled in the 80s. Guys were leaving early. Guys were leaving after their sophomore and junior years. Mike Jordan didn't go four years of uh, basketball in Carolina. If you take a look at all of the all-time great basketball players, especially from that era, and especially from those guys who were drafted high in the draft, you would take a look and say that a lot of those guys were early entrants. Isaiah Thomas left after his sophomore year after winning the championship with Bob Knight in Indiana. I guess he had enough of his bullshit. Mark Aguirre left Ray Meyer in DePaul University after his sophomore year, and DePaul was one of the top teams in college basketball. You take a look at Magic Johnson, who left after his sophomore year after he won a championship with Michigan State. You take a look at Larry Bird, who left after his junior year, even though he transferred from Indiana to Indiana State, said out a year, but he didn't go into his senior year of college basketball. He left after his junior year. So if you really think about it, the majority of really great players who were playing college basketball at that time, they didn't stay four years. That wasn't until a little bit later when you had the Christian Leitners and the Grant Hills and the Bobby Hurleys and others who decided to stay. The Tim, Tim Duncan was probably the last four-year guy who could have gone number one if he wanted to after his sophomore or junior year. He decided to come back for his senior year and play all four years. But, um, yeah, during that time, the ACC was just stacked. So, I mean, you had guys out there playing to where it was, hey, man. I mean, you know, Mike Jordan was just another run-of-the-mill guy. So, again, it was just interesting when they're speaking about the rise of Michael Jordan. I mean, this wasn't a situation where Mike Jordan, Michael Jordan, was far from being that LeBron James type guy where, you know, at the age of 15 or 16, he's being pictured, he's being on the cover of Sports Illustrated talking about this is the guy that's going to be saving the league at the NBA. I mean, Michael Jordan didn't have that type of notoriety, even though you're speaking about days before the internet and before YouTube highlights and before AAU camps and before sneaker companies really got involved. I know Sonny Vaccaro and George Raveling back in the day were running Nike and Adidas, but the explosion of AAU and summer grassroots basketball really didn't happen at the time when Michael Jordan was playing basketball, was playing high school basketball. I mean, there was a situation where you would go to Har Har Howard Garfinkel's five-star camp 
There was a couple of others for the elite basketball players, but for the most part, there really wasn't any type of AAU basketball that we see today. There aren't any traveling teams or anything like that. So the legend and the rise of Michael Jordan in terms of him being a great basketball player, even from his high school days to his college days, was kind of kept under the radar, unlike today where, you know, I'm taking a look at three and four-star recruits at Georgetown's recruiting. I could find almost any basketball player that I want to on YouTube if he's ranked somewhere in the top 200, top 250. There's a there's a mixtape, there's a basketball highlight reel of, of, of film of him on YouTube. That wasn't the case back when Michael Jordan was up there doing his thing and making his rise to prominence and making his rise from being cut his sophomore year as a uh, on the from the varsity squads all the way to being a third player pick and in the 1984 NBA draft. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. The podcast, so glad that you could be with us. So, again, discussing some of the things that I was taking a look at about the last dance. And uh, one thing that I also found that was interesting, just kind of moving this discussion up from the origins of Michael Jordan and, and that type of thing. The One of the things that I completely forgot was the front office at that time's willingness to break up to the team. To start rebuilding, basically, after winning their fifth championship. I forgot. I completely forgot all about that. I knew that there was tension between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson. I knew that Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan didn't like Jerry Krause at all for a number of reasons. But I didn't know the extent of how much Jerry Krause wanted those guys to rebuild the team by basically getting rid of Phil Jackson and trading Scottie Pippen and moving forward. I, I really didn't have any inkling about that, about how serious they were. And I guess from a perspective where Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause was taking a look at, it was a factor of, hey, look, we don't want to make the same mistakes that the Boston Celtics did when they had Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Danny Ainge and Robert Parrish and Dennis Johnson and those guys who was the runner-up for the team of the 80s behind the Los Angeles Lakers. One of the things, excuse me, one of the things that Red Auerbach did that, he got some criticism for was he kept the core of that Boston team that was championship material that had won him three championships in the 80s and went to five NBA championships. He kept that team together way too long, which consisted of Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish and Dennis Johnson. He should have broken that team up after the 1987-88 season. That was, that was the year they were the number one seed in the East and then lost to the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals in six games. Where, <laughs> where Kevin McKay refused to give dap to Bill Lambeer that they as they were walking off the uh, walking out the floor, but kind of turned over to Isaiah Thomas and said, "Hey, you know what? Don't be happy. Don't be satisfied that you beat us to go to the NBA Finals. Finish the job. Finish the job." It was almost like a passing of the torch, shall you say? Because if you remember the season before, you take a look at that epic seven game series in the Eastern Conference Finals between. The Pistons and the Boston Celtics, where in Game Five, Larry Bird stole the ball, the inbound pass to Isaiah Thomas. <coughs> excuse me, from Isaiah Thomas, gave it over to Dennis Johnson for the layup, which won the game. And then you're also speaking about Game Seven, where I still believe that Detroit would have won the game if Adrian Dantley had not gotten concussed, bumping heads with his own player early in the fourth quarter. He goes out at the Boston Garden. Larry Bird does his thing, and Boston wins a really tight game in Game Seven. So. It was just a matter at that time where the Celtics, as they were getting older, as they were becoming more brittle, McHale was dealing with injuries, Bird was dealing with his back injury and such. You just knew, Boston knew 
that the Detroit Pistons were coming. And they probably figured after winning that series to go on to where they lost the sixth game to the Los Angeles Lakers in 86-87. They probably knew, like, we probably got two more good years at the very most to try to get back and win another championship, at the very most. And when it finally came to fruition that they lost in the 88 Eastern Conference Finals in Game 6 at the Pontiac Silverdome to the Detroit Pistons, I guess there was the recollection that, you know what, unless these guys aren't mature enough to handle the success that comes their way or they go absolutely batty or nutty in the front office, this is going to be the team, the Detroit Pistons, that are going to be claiming the throne at the best team in the Eastern Conference via some type of meltdown or injury. So it was... It would have been a bold move, no question about it, because, again, you're speaking about a team the year that, that year that finished number one overall in the Eastern Conference. It would have been a bold move by Red Auerbach to go ahead and say, you know what, with Larry Bird with only a couple of more years left, we're going to have to see what we can do to start rebuilding again to see what we can do to keep this thing going. Now, of course, they should have been rebuilding even before, but... The draft pick that they had back in the, oh my goodness gracious, 86, 85, 86. He had 86 draft because the Celtics were coming off a 67-15 record where they beat the Houston Rockets in the NBA Finals, one of the best teams in really NBA history. If you take a look at that 1985-86 Boston Celtics season where they went, what, 67-15. They were like 40-2 and at home and beat the Houston Rockets of Akeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson and Robert Reed and those guys beat them in six games. And so they were at the, they were at their utmost powers. Larry Bird was at his absolute best. He was never going to go any higher than what he was. He was playing his best basketball in the 85, 86 season. Kevin McHale was unstoppable. Robert Parrish was a good fit. Dennis Johnson was a glue that could defend and hit the open shot and run the team. Danny Ainge was a good shooter from the uh, shooting guard position. They had Bill Walton, sixth man of the year, coming after, off the bench. You had Jerry Seasting who could hit his shot. So the Celtics, I guess you could maybe say that was really the great <laughs> – that, that Boston Celtics team, I guess you could say that was really the, the last – great white basketball team in NBA history, if you really think about it. After that, the brothers took over and said, yeah, we're not letting this happen again. So a team that was mainly formed with white guys winning championships, uh, that was the last team, the Boston Celtics, that uh, <laughs> that represented the NBA in that fashion. But, uh, of course, those guys can play. But they went ahead drafted uh, Len Bias. We all knew about my idol, my hero, Len Bias, who still pains me that day, that fateful June 21st or June 19th. 1986 day, that, that still haunts me. That still kind of gets me a little bit emotional. But basically, the reason why I'm bringing this up is the fact that <clears throat> Boston planned to rebuild. They were, to re, they were going to rebuild with Len Bias, but he died. Boston kept going, but Auerbach never, I guess, started rebuilding the team one year too early before one year too late. To fast forward this and to make the similarity what I'm talking about with the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, how they were, the front office was willing to break up the team after the start of uh, winning championship number five. Again, it was a situation where, okay, do we go for championship number six and we pay for that by saying this is really the last time that this team could really be together because of the payroll, because of the animosity of Scottie Pippen? Because of the animosity between Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause, do we really go ahead and win the sixth championship and then the future looks unclear? The future for winning championships, even with the Mike, 
the great Michael Jordan still have his utmost powers and still being the best basketball player in the games? Do we still take that chance by bringing everybody back for one more ride and then rebuilding then? Or do we try to start rebuilding by possibly trading Scottie Pippen and getting some players to where, you know what, even if we don't win the championship number six this year, at least we'll have a team in place for the next four or five years to go ahead and try to win a championship. And instead of winning maybe six championships in eight years, we could say win nine championships in 12 years or something like that. So the Chicago Bulls, again, with Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf, the GM and owner respectively of the team, was taking a look at that and saying, yeah, we need to go ahead and uh, start to rebuild and start to, um, you know, reshape this team. And Michael Jordan and those guys were like, hey, whoa, 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 man, what the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? How in the hell are you going to start thinking about rebuilding when we're out here winning championships? Two years ago, we won 70 basketball games. We were 72 and 10. This season, we won the championships, man. We are rolling right now. What, you're talking about breaking this up? Fuck you. We ain't doing shit. Looking back on it now, I think it was a situation, maybe they were putting too much confidence in Michael Jordan by saying, you know what, if we trade Scottie Pippen right now where his trade value is higher, we don't know what we're going to be getting from Dennis Rodman. Jordan is still going to be Jordan, so we can get back some really good players, maybe not as great as Scottie Pippen, but we can get some players who will be complimentary enough for Jordan to carry them to another championship and then move on before. If you remember when... Scottie Pippen was traded by Seattle after he was drafted, I believe, number five in the draft to Chicago. It took Pippen a couple of years to finally mesh with Michael Jordan. There were some tough times. And there were some times, I'm telling you, man, where Michael Jordan really beat down physically, mentally on Scottie Pippen. If you remember game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Detroit Pistons, I think the last year that the Pistons won a championship, and Scottie Pippen had a quote-unquote headache in game seven and he played soft he played timid there was a book i read way back in the day that was talking about on the way back to the airport to the detroit airport after game seven michael jordan from the back of the team bus was out there hollering and screaming and yelling insults at scotty pippen because he figured in a game like situation like this despite him having a headache what are you doing coming to a game like this with the situation and the stakes so high what are you doing coming in playing like a bitch? What are you doing playing like a little bitch there, Scotty? Little soft and charming motherfucker. What the fuck are you doing? I mean, Jordan was just killing the guy. So it took Scotty a couple of years before, before he finally earned the trust of Michael Jordan. And he became the greatest number two guy in the last 20, 25, 30 years, arguably. But I guess the thinking was with this upcoming season after winning championship number five, I guess it was, well, I mean, again, let's see what we can do to rebuild the team, bring in somebody that's going to help kind of form that bridge for when Michael does start to slow down and retire, we'll have a team in place that can continue to be competing for championships for four or five more years to come, rather than put all our chips into this one basket with Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, and these guys, Phil Jackson, we win a championship. Yeah, that's great. But then again, that'll be the end of our championship winning days. So for one, I, I guess, you know, from that situation, I can I can see where he's coming from. I can definitely see where he's coming from. Look, man, when Boston, when Boston went down, I mean, they went down hard. 
After losing in Game 6 to the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference Final in the 1988 playoffs, the next season they went 42-40. and 40. They were swept in the first round of the playoffs by the Pistons. Larry Bird, at the age of 32, played only six games because of the heel injury. Now, they came back. You know, McHale was still averaging 22 points per game and eight rebounds per game, playing 78 games at the age of 31. Paris was averaging 18 points a game, 12 rebounds a game, and 80 games at the age of 35. Dennis Johnson was still serviceable and possibly tradable, averaging 10 points and six and a half assists in 72 games at the age of 34. So it was a matter of you still had some trade value for these guys. But again, Auerbach decided to hold on to those guys, and it cost them. And it cost him. So that was one of the things I completely forgot from that time was the fact that, you know, Reinsdorf, even after, in Kraus, even after winning championship number five, they were looking to, uh, quote unquote, break up the dynasty and start the rebuilding process to another one with Michael Jordan being the centerpiece, being the foundation to everything that grew, everything that moved in terms of then winning championships with a new bunch of cast of characters. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, you know, I'm also thinking that I forgot was everybody kind of assumed that the relationship between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson, and especially Michael Jordan, went sour after, I guess, sometime after Krause made that comment about organizations win chip organizations win championships and I will defend Krause on this as Michael Jordan should know now as the owner of the Charlotte Bobcats he should he should know this now that yeah what Jerry Krause was saying was correct it might not have gone well but what he said is correct yes organizations do win championships I remember a couple of podcasts ago, I was talking about the New England Patriots and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, and they were talking about the argument was, well, who was more responsible for winning a championship, Bill Belichick or Tom Brady? And I was discussing how asinine and how ridiculous and how disrespectful it was for the whole New England Patriots organization to sit there and say, well, the only reason why that the Patriots won a championship was because of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Yes, those are two guys who were right there who... Who, who um, you know, were the main reasons, of course. But let me tell you something. If New England didn't have that defense, if New England didn't have that owner, if New England didn't have that offensive coordinator, if New England didn't have the offensive line, if New England didn't have everything surrounding Tom Brady, and if the organization didn't give Bill Belichick the autonomy that he had to build a team, the New England Patriots aren't the New England Patriots, Period. Period. And it's the same thing with the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. Yeah, Jordan was great. And yes, you know what? Yeah, players do win championships. Yes, coaches don't go out there and play. General managers don't go out and shoot. Or shoot. Owners don't go out there and pass. I, I get that. Assistant coaches don't go out there and defend. I get all those things. You know, I understand that the players put in long hours and they watch a lot of films and they dedicate themselves both physically and mentally to be in peak condition to play 82 games a year, to compete for 82 games a year in the regular season and go through the two-month grind of an NBA playoff. I get it. I get it. The main reason for, for championships are because of players. No question about it. But you cannot dismiss and you cannot diminish the importance 
of a team being a dynasty, a team like the Chicago Bulls winning six championships in eight years, you cannot disrespect those that put the players and the coaching staff and everything around Michael Jordan, which enabled him to go out and win championships. And I think that's what Jerry Cross was saying. And, you know, Jerry's ego was basically saying, hey, you know what? I mean, you know, Jordan didn't win this championship with himself and four cheerleaders. I mean, we didn't go across to the playgrounds. We didn't go across the Chicago Stadium over to the playgrounds and pick up four guys who were playing after they lost and couldn't get on to the court next and say, hey, you want to go ahead to the Chicago Stadium and play basketball for the Chicago Bulls this game? Sure, why not? Go ahead. No, it was a lot more to it than that. And I think that's what Jerry Krause is saying. And Jerry Krause, who, by the way, is in the Hall of Fame as a basketball executive, he was largely responsible for the success of the Chicago Bulls. Yes, he could be cantankerous. Yes, he might have not been the most lovable and warm and cuddly guy. But in terms of putting a team together that won championships, Jerry Krause got it done. Now, his situation with Scottie Pippen could it have been better. Yeah. I mean, the whole situation in terms of wanting to break up the Bulls a little bit earlier, should he handle that a little bit better? Yeah. Was it a mistake maybe to openly think about, discuss, and maybe try to put in motion them trying to rebuild before trying to win another championship when they've won two championships in a row coming up to the 97-98 uh, season? Yeah, I mean, of course. But you know what? A lot of folks out there who are basketball executives, there's a lot of people out there in the Basketball Hall of Fame, there are a lot of really great personnel people and coaches and players who are in the Basketball Hall of Fame who, guess what? actually made mistakes, who were actually wrong on things that they thought about in terms of their ideas. Jerry Krause was one of them, no doubt about it. And because of that, I mean, he got vilified. I'm quite sure when everything is all said and done with this documentary, if people are going to come away and Jerry Krause, God rest his soul, he's no longer with us. So he's no longer, he, he can't defend himself. And even if he was, I mean, Krause was the type of guy to be like, ah, you know what, hey, I, I did what I did and you know, whatever. I mean, what the hell? I mean, when you when you really have that type of attitude after Jordan basically tries to embarrass and blast you at his Hall of Fame speech, I don't think a documentary like this is going to, if he was still around, to have Jerry Krause all of a sudden start unloading and defending himself um, in terms of his importance to what the Chicago Bulls did during the dynasty of the 1990s. But yeah, I mean, organizations do win championships. And I'm telling you, Michael Jordan doesn't win a championship without Scottie Pippen. Michael Jordan doesn't win a championship if Phil Jackson is not brought in from the Albany Patroons. And let me and let me tell you something. If you don't know, Phil Jackson was not one of the quote-unquote hot coaches. Many people were up there laughing, shaking their head, bewildered at the fact of why Jerry Krause would even bring this guy, Phil Jackson, from the Patroons over to the bench to be Doug Collins' assistant. It was a head-scratcher why Jerry Krause even fired Doug Collins to move Phil Jackson to be the head coach of the Chicago Bulls. I mean, this was not something where it was like a fait accompli, where, oh yeah, as soon as you hire Phil Jackson, they're, they're going to be taken off because Phil Jackson is going to be a guy that's going to be winning championship after championship and form a relationship with Michael Jordan as far as player coach is concerned that's maybe only rival to uh, Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich. Yeah, of course, no doubt about it. No one knew that. No one saw that. So for him to do that, that was that took some big kahunas. The opportunity for him to trade for Scottie Pippen from some central Arkansas state 
that was a strong move for him to bring in Bill Cartwright to trade one of his good Michael Jordan's good friends, Charles Oakley, and bring him in for some extra meat and, and, and hustle and tussle with Patrick Ewing. That was a big move. Yeah, so bringing Steve Kerr to go ahead and make the acquisition to bring in Dennis Rodman, who at the time was, as far as his reputation was concerned, was mud, was trash, was nothing after the nonsense that he did trying to basically destroy the fabric of the San Antonio Spurs franchise. I remember the nonsense that he put up with, and poor John Lucas, I'm quite sure he aged years the times we had to deal with Dennis Rodman. The same with Bob, same with Bob Hill when he was the coach and he was coaching Dennis Rodman. So that trade that Chicago Bulls made after losing to the Orlando Magic the year that Jordan came back in the middle of the season to play basketball from baseball, the fact that they knew with Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardison and Nick Anderson that at that time with the team that they had, Horace Grant also as a free agent left Chicago was on Orlando. So the team that Michael Jordan came back to when he was wearing number 45, despite the fact that they had Scottie Pippen, Jerry Krause knew that this was a team that was not good enough to beat the newcomers on the block at that time, the new dynasty in the making, which was at that time the Orlando Magic. So he had to he had to gamble. So he went ahead and he traded Will Purdue to the San Antonio Spurs, brought in Dennis Rodman. So this nonsense about, you know, he needs to be laughed at, or, or I can't believe that he would say something like that where organizations win championships. Yeah, organizations definitely win championships. And Jerry Krause was a big, big reason why the Jordan Bulls became the, uh, the, the, the Chicago Bulls that we know of today. And basically, instead of mocking Jerry Krause, what Michael Jordan should do, and of course he's too proud to do it, and really doesn't mean anything now because, as I mentioned before, Jerry Krause is dead, so who cares? But for the most part, instead of mocking and belittling and disrespecting Jerry Krause, even from the grave, what Michael Jordan should be doing is giving thanks. It's saying thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to become Michael Jordan. Because going into his seven year, yeah, Michael Jordan sold a lot of shoes and he made a lot of Gatorade commercials and he was doing all those things. But one thing, the criticism of Michael Jordan was he wasn't a champion. Here was a guy who was more interested in wearing, winning scoring titles than NBA titles. That was the moniker placed on Michael Jordan going into his seventh year in the NBA. In the NBA. A guy who was a fabulous talent, unbelievable talent, best player in the game, but couldn't win a championship. And they always brought this up. There, there, there was never, what was the stat? There was a stat like a, a, a team had never won a championship with a player who had led the league in scoring. And of course, Jordan led the league in scoring and won a championship and all those things. But my point is, is that because Krauss put a team around Michael Jordan and put him in an atmosphere where he could become uh, a champion like he was. Instead of mocking and belittling him, he should be saying, hey, Jerry, thank you so much for bringing in Scottie Pippen. Thank you for, so much for believing in a coach like Bill Jackson that he would be a guy that could lead us to championships. Thank you so much for bringing in a guy like uh, Bill Cartwright. Thank you so much for having the foresight and the cojones and the guts to bring in someone like a uh, Dennis Rodman and acquire guys like a Craig Hodges and acquire guys like a Scott uh, Scotty King and those type of things. Thank you so much for putting a team around me that gave me the opportunity to become the cultural icon and champion that I am that I am known as today. But again, again, Jordan won't say that. So just amazing. But then again, this all came back 
to the Jordan Crawford relationship going sour. It had nothing to do with the quote. It had everything to do with Jordan's second year when he was out 64 games with a broken foot. And it was interesting in the documentary, the fact that it was like, hey, look, you know, Mike, you got to stay off the foot, let it heal, let it heal. But Jordan was just so amped. Jordan wanted to play so badly. He just couldn't stand sitting around that he had to get out, get out and do something. He defied what the doctors and the trainers were telling him to do. He went back to North Carolina, out of sight, out of mind. Can you imagine that nowadays, out of sight, out of mind, with everything we got going on right now, the way the media and technology and social media and everything like that is concerned? Do you think Michael Jordan could get away with this or any basketball player could get away with Michael Jordan got away with his second year in the NBA? He went back to North Carolina and in secrecy from the Chicago Bulls staff and and, and, and such, he went out there and he was playing basketball. First, he started doing some exercises in the water to get his foot strengthened. And as he said, he started playing one-on-one. Then he started playing two-on-two. Then he started playing three. Then he started playing three-on-three. And before you know it, the guy was, started, the guy was playing five-on-five. Five. <laughs> he came back and those guys were like, wait a minute. Take a look at the left calf and take a look at the right calf. Motherfucker, you've been playing basketball, haven't you? You son of a bitch. So... It was a situation where it was like, look, Mike, we're going to shut you down because, you know, the rumor and the talk was, well, you know, they're trying to tank to uh, get a higher draft pick. That's smart. (laughs) That's smart. Because at the time, Chicago made the playoffs at the number eight seed, 30 games, by the way. For those who think the NBA is so lousy and so terrible, back when Jordan was playing in the second year, 30 wins in the Eastern Conference could get you into the, uh, to the playoffs. A 30 or 52 record had you qualify could get you qualified to play in the playoffs. Yikes. But it was a situation where it was like, look, you know what? Even if we don't make the playoffs, even if we do make the playoffs, we're going to get our asses kicked by Boston. We might as well take the precautionary measures with Jordan. Don't have him come back and play. And Jordan was talking about, no, man, fuck that. I want to come back and play. I want to come back and win. I can do this. Me, myself, and I, I can go ahead and do this. And it was like, look, no. So that was the contention right there. And Jordan was talking about in the documentary where they said, hey, look, you know, your foot is 90% healed, but there's a 10% chance it may break. And if it breaks this time, your career is done. And could you imagine that? Think of the NBA today. Think of the NBA for the last 20 years. Think of the NBA of the last 25 years if Jordan in his second year breaks his foot, if he becomes that generation's Brandon Roy or Greg Oden or, shall I say, Sam Bowie. How does the history of the NBA, how does society look if that happens? But getting back, so they were like, look, you know, your foot is 90% healed, but there's that 10% chance that if it breaks again, then you have a, your career's over. And Jordan was like, well, what the fuck, man? I mean, you're talking about glass half full, half empty. It's over almost at the brim. And you're going to be taking precautionary measures on that. And he came up, you know, he, he came up with the situation where they were like, look, if you had, and you could have, if you had a headache and you had 10 aspirins and none of them could cure the headache and one of them could kill you, would you go ahead and take the chance? And Jordan said, well, it depends how fucking much the uh, headache hurts. But, you know, it, it, I guess now, maybe Jordan a little bit older, 
a lot older. He's managed, what, 55, 56, 57, somewhere like that. So being now a guy who's older and now the owner of a team, I'm quite sure right now MJ the owner, if MJ the owner now with dealing with MJ the player back then as the owner, I'm quite sure that MJ the owner now would be telling the MJ of 1986 or 87, somewhere around there, 86, yeah, he would have been telling Jordan the same thing. Hey, look, man, we just can't risk it. You're just too important. And even if we make it in the playoffs, what's the big fucking deal? We ain't going to do anything anyway. So Jerry Krause was the only one to really say, look, no, no, no. So they finally compromised as it was explained in the documentary that they were going to just go ahead and say, all right, look, we'll just play you 24 minutes. So I remember that situation. I remember the whole deal. Poor Stan Albeck was uh, at wit's end in terms of that. So basically that's where the relationship started to unravel between Jerry Krause and Michael Jordan. I, I thought it was a lot later than that, but, you know, I, that's one of the nice things that uh, watching the documentary found that out. I knew that Scottie Pippen was underpaid, but I also knew, reading many stories at the time, it was like, hey, look, man, Scottie, do not sign this contract. Don't sign this contract. But Pippen came from a poor background and the family was poor, and at the time, $3 million or or nine years, $27 million seemed like a lot of money to him. So he was like, are you kidding me, man? I got nine years, $27 million guaranteed? Shit. Hell yeah, I'm going to take that money. But they told him. They said, Scotty, look, if you take this money, realize this. There is no negotiation. Jerry Reinsdorf is not going to tear up your contract and give you another one when the league starts to explode. I just want you to know that. Pippen was like, no, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. So what happens? The league explodes, money starts flowing in, and Pippen's like, well, time for me to get mine. And the Chicago Brass was like, no, I don't think so. You signed your contract. You're locked in for nine years. Screw you. This was before all of the, you know, five-year Supermax and Max contracts and, and, and that type of thing. This is, the, this is the time when guys like Glenn Robinson, the number one draft pick, was getting like 10 years, $60 million, and all these types of, contract lengths and, 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 and averages. But yeah, so Scotty got pissed off and everything like that. And it was like, well, I mean, again, he told you. The owner actually told you not to sign this contract. You signed the contract. You wanted the guaranteed money. You wanted the security. Well, you know, too fucking bad. You know, so I, 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 I can't blame Jerry Krause for that one. I'm quite sure Jerry Krause had the, had the boss. I'm quite sure maybe Jerry Krause did go up to uh, Jerry Reinsdorf and maybe say, "Hey, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't." Reinsdorf like, "No, you know my rules. You know what I'm. You know, you know who I. You know who I am. You know what I am about." So no. So in that case, you know, Krause got himself a bad deal. I think. And I think as we go on, it's going to be interesting to see the fact in this documentary that it's going to be pretty remarkable. As dysfunctional as the Chicago Bulls were, especially after they got Dennis Rodman and all of this other shit came down, it's going to be amazing that these guys won as many championships as they did. That speaks toward the greatness of Michael Jordan, the player. That speaks toward the greatness of communication and relationship building of Phil Jackson, of him also being a basketball coach. When you when you reach that point, man, it's not even about X's and O's. Tex Winter was the one who was basically running that offense in terms of the uh, in terms of the triangle. 
I mean, that was the innovator of that offense, Tate Swinner, and he was there for all of the Chicago Bulls championships. And there was also a situation where, where you know, during the during Jordan's first run as uh, with Phil Jackson at the coach where they won three championships, took a lot for Michael to finally acquiesce and give it give the triangle offense a chance. It really wasn't until what game four maybe of the '91 Finals against the Los Angeles Lakers where John, John uh, Jim Paxson, excuse me, hit a lot of wide open shots because the Lakers were so focused on Jordan and Phil Jackson in one of the huddles that you remember was sitting there yelling at Jordan talking about Mike when you get the ball who's open. John is, well, then pass him the ball. Or Jim is, pass him the ball. Trust him. He'll hit the shot. Give him the ball. So it took a while before Jordan finally bought in fully to the Phil Jackson triangle offense. But you give Phil credit as a great coach as far as being a great communicator, a great understanding of what he needed to do. So as we move on and on and we see more of this documentary, I'm going to be interested in terms of just working with others. I think, if man, if you're a basketball coach, let's say, for instance, if you're a basketball coach out in San Diego and you're, and you're, a, uh, you're a girls' basketball coach for a team that's going to be terrible next year and you're going to be looking at some ways to see what you can do to try to reach some of the players who, because of this coronavirus, has not been practicing, hasn't picked up a basketball, hasn't kept themselves in shape, or worried about other things. And now you're looking at a situation now where with a team that you had this year, you guys were lucky if you scored 25 points. Now with the talent, lack of talent, no talent, coming back for your squad this year, it'll be lucky if you guys score what, or you gals score what, 10, 12 a game with some of the, with some of the, 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 the talent that you have coming back. Maybe that coach for that girls team in San Diego, maybe – as well as watching some Patrick Ewing highlight tapes of Georgetown when he's coaching, it would be interesting to see if they can get a little into a little bit more of how Phil Jackson kind of righted the ship, working on his communication skills, working on his leadership skills from the avenue and the angle of a coach, and how he connected and gained the trust of his best player, Michael Jordan. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how Phil even allowed the situation between Scotty and Dennis Rodman and Michael Jordan. With all that nonsense going around with Jerry Krause and everything that was floating around that season, it's going to be interesting to see how Phil Jackson, from vantage point of what we're going to be able to see with his documentary, how he handled everything. But man, it was just dysfunction out of dysfunction. And you have Jerry Reinsdorf, big ego. You have Jerry Krause, Big ego. You have the ultimate alpha dog, biggest ego of the group, Michael Jordan, who was basically also a bully. Let's let's also let's let's not forget that either, because some of the things that he was doing to Jerry Krause were wrong, were ridiculous, were mean spirited, were uncalled for. I, I I don't understand. And look, I'm a guy who can hold some grudges. I'm a guy who can definitely go ahead and try to do everything I can to, to demean and belittle somebody if I think they've done me wrong, regardless if they've done me wrong or not. So I'm, I'm a guy, if given the opportunity, I will try my best to really get personal on someone that I'm not liking and really take some good shots and really take some good, deep, personal shots to see what I can do to make them hurt, to make them feel bad big time. So I, I get it. 
But in Jordan's case, man, some of the stuff that he was saying to Jerry Krause was just so disrespectful that it was just, let's just call it what it is. It was bullying. Michael Jordan was using his clout to bully somebody. And that was small, that spoke of some insecurities, but it was just, it was just interesting, man. So it's going to be, so you had that and you had Scottie Pippen who took a lead from Michael Jordan by saying, well, if Jordan's going to go ahead and start talking shit about Krause and really getting down the down low about it, well, I'm going to do the same thing and I'm even going to try to be even more mean-spirited. I'm going to try to be even more vicious to the point where even Phil Jackson was like, geez, man, I mean, I don't like the motherfucker either, but you know, let's just calm down a little bit here. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about crossing the line, man, you flying over that line. So moving forward, that's what I'm really interested in seeing in terms of the, um, in terms of uh, the Chicago Bulls deal. But yeah, man, Michael Jordan, the bully. I don't, I don't mind Jordan getting on folks and I don't mind, you know, all great players. And, you know, people talk about with, with, uh, with this with LeBron and this is one of the things because you know a lot of folks when they want to take a look at some of the short points or some of the uh, the warts that Michael Jordan had as a leader or a basketball player you know they, they ignore them or at, you know it's nice they at the time forget and you know every time LeBron James wants to disrespect, disrespect David Blatt back in the day or when he first got to the Miami Heat he was going to Pat Riley and trying to get rid of uh, Eric Spolster at the time. And because of that, LeBron James was the worst basketball player. And Michael Jordan would never do something like that. Well, you got to remember, LeBron is just following in a long line of cats and, and franchise players who, you know what, man, especially in the NBA, as Jeff Van Gundy said, the best way to keep your job is to become their, the, the, do really well in terms of forming a positive relationship with the best player and Jordan was tough man Jordan was tough but you know what all superstars are tough I remember reading a book now I just want to just give this comparison then I'll go ahead and take my break but I remember reading a book by Jeff Perlman talking about the Los Angeles Lakers dynasty of Magic and Kareem and all those guys Pat Riley and all those guys and they talked about when Magic first came into the league and all this other stuff and this that and the other Man, Magic was a son of a bitch, man. As far as a leader is concerned, Magic, man, that motherfucker would, if he needed to, I mean, he would make you feel small as shit. I mean, Jordan talking about, hey, you know what, I'm going to go after you and I'm going to challenge you. And, you know, if, if I hurt your feelings, too bad. Your door's right over there. You can leave if you want to. Kobe, I mean, the, the shit that he did to poor Swish Parker, all that kind of shit. Chris Paul, another guy who, you know what, I'm, I'm really not interested in your feelings. You know, if if you get hurt, then that's your business in terms of me hurting your feelings. That's, that's your problem, not mine. I mean, that's all formulated from the Jordan thing, and it comes back to, you know, superstar players. Larry Bird never had a problem with addressing and dressing down Kevin McHale and Danny Ainge if he needed to. But it was a situation where, with uh, just talking about great players in terms of those guys being just motherfuckers when they needed to be. I remember Magic Johnson reading this book again by Jeff Perlman. Magic Johnson was, um, Magic Johnson was, um, this was the 85, 86 season, the year they lost in six games to the Houston Rockets in the Western Conference Finals. There was a lot of turmoil and there was a lot of dysfunction on that Laker team. And one of the main reasons was Maurice Lucas. If you remember Maurice Lucas, the guy who won a championship with the 1976-77 Portland Trailblazers was the enforcer, made sure that everybody left Bill Walton alone. So near the end of his career, uh, 
Maurice Lucas comes over to the Lakers. And Maurice Lucas is this guy to where it's like, look, you know, I've been in the league for X number of years, and I've been an all-star X number of times, and I'm an NBA champion. So, you know, me being a veteran, there's some certain things that a veteran is entitled to being, you know, in the NBA for as long as I did. And the Lakers and Pat Riley, Riley and those guys were like, no, we don't do that here. You know, when you're your first, when you join our team, you start at the bottom. You're no better than a rookie. Because this is the first year that you're with the team. And Maurice Lucas was like, yeah, but I have seniority. I have seniority. When people, when the Lakers got on the bus, the veterans and everybody sat up front. And the rookies and the free agents, free agents the second-year guys and everything sat in the back. And Pat Riley and those guys would get on the bus and they would see Maurice Lucas in the front. And they would be like, Luke, what are you doing? In the back. Well, I've got seniority. No, your first year with the Lakers. First year with the Lakers, you sit in the back. So it was tension and conflict like that, which was part of this whole powder keg, which made the 1985-86 season for the Lakers go haywire. So just to get back to the story, so one of these days, so one of the days during that season, the Lakers were holding a players-only meeting. And, you know, Kareem, I guess the mothers, got up and spoke and gave their piece about what was going on with the team and this, that, and the other. So Maurice Lucas was about to get up and he was about to say something. And then as soon as he got up and started talking, Magic Johnson said, Magic got up and said, man, no one wants to hear what you have to say. Sit the, sit down and shut the fuck up. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it's like, man, no one hears what you, no one here cares what you, uh, what you need to say. Sit down and shut the fuck up. I mean, that's magic, man. That was magic. That was magic. One of the years. Before Wes Matthews became Magic's biggest cheerleader on the Lakers when he was acquired by L.A., he was playing for the San Antonio Spurs, and the Lakers in the playoffs were about to close out the Spurs, and Wes Matthews scored 35 points, had an awesome game, had a brilliant game, right? So, but the Lakers won. The Lakers were killing the Spurs. They were going to be moving on, I guess, to the next round of the playoffs, and Magic is out there over there on the bench chilling and this, that, and the other. And so near the end of the game, Magic kind of leans over, and Wes, for the Spurs, is still out there playing. And he yells out, he says, hey, Wes, Wes, where are you guys going on? Where are you guys going on vacation tomorrow? And Wes kind of came over, looked at him and smiled and said, yeah, we might be going on vacation, but I scored 35 points. And the Laker be- Lakers bench kind of laughed and kind of looked at Magic. And Magic kind of laughed and looked back at um, Wes Matthews and said, yeah, I know you scored 35 points. We let you score 35 points, you stupid motherfucker. And it was just because, look, yeah, go ahead, Wes. We're going to go ahead and let you score 35 points. But guess what? In doing so, you're going to ignore Artis Gilmore. You're going to ignore George Gervin. You're going to ignore uh, uh, Johnny Moore. So, yeah, that's great. You go ahead and you score your 35 points, and we'll go ahead and whip your ass because you're too busy thinking about your selfish ass to get everybody else involved to try to have the Spurs beat us. So, congratulations. We let you score 35 points, you stupid motherfucker. So, magic, my man, was getting down. Last, last, uh, Example from the book, Mike Schmeck. Remember him? Seven-foot guy, white guy, 12th man. He came over from the Lakers midway through the season, um, the year that they won the championship. I think they beat Boston. Not Chuck Nevitt, not that year, but uh, I think 86, 87, the year that they won the championship. Well, being the new guy on the team, 
Schmerich really wanted to show the guys that he was all in and he was going to do everything in his power to help these guys win a championship and he was going to be a great teammate and this, that, and the other. And to show his dedication and to show his professionalism and to show that he was on board and to show that he wasn't going to be a problem and he was going to try to do everything that he could to blend in and be part of the team and help those guys win that in the morning of the game, there were two buses. There was one bus for the players and the coaches and such, and then there was another bus for the trainers and the equipment guys and maybe the uh, media and, and, and such, right? So Mike Schmidt, of course, being on the team, a big seven-foot guy, right? He gets in there, and he, he, he's going to go in early. He's going to get on the bus early. He doesn't want to cause any conflict. He doesn't want to cause any waves. He's going to get on the bus, and he's going to get on the bus early, and he's not going to be sitting in the front row or anything like that. No, 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 no. He's going to go straight to the back of the bus just to let these guys know, hey, you're not going to get any problems out of me, right? So he's the first one on the bus, and he goes right to the back. And some of the other players, A.C. Green and Rambus and Kareem and... James Worthy, they get on the bus and they take their customary seat. And then Magic gets on the bus. Magic gets on the bus, kind of looks toward the back, sees Schmerich. He walks to the back of the bus. You know, Schmerich is probably sitting there going, all right, he's going to maybe introduce myself or I'm going to let him know that I'm here, rah, 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 for the team and this, that, and the other. Let's go do the thing and this, that, and the other, right? So Magic walks to the back of the bus. Looks at Schmerich and he says, get the fuck off the bus. What? I mean, is this some kind of joke or something? <laughs> and he kind of looked at the rest of the guys and he noticed that none of the guys were smiling or laughing or joking. And Magic, once again, took a look at him, seriously as he can be. Get the fuck off the bus. Shit, okay. Uh, hmm, all right, so Schmerich. Packed up his stuff and kind of slinkered out. I mean, how embarrassing, how humiliating to be undressed like that, to be basically bullied like that. And you see him walking past his teammates who are just kind of giving a look like, ooh, man, he sucks to be you right now. So he got off the bus and he had to ride to the he had to ride to the arena with the equipment managers and all those type of things, right? I mean, what a humiliating experience, man. You know, geez, just to be embarrassed like that by the leader of the team, the, the franchise, player, this, that, and the other. Well, we fast-forwarded to the forum, game six at the end of the game, the championship. Those guys are in the locker room. They're celebrating. We beat the Boston Celtics in six games. We're NBA world champions. Woohoo! Champagne's flying around. They're hugging each other. Man, Worthy, we did this. Buck, we did this. Cat, we did this. Byron, we did this. Yeah, man, this, that, and the other. And Smerick is up there celebrating, too, and this, that, and the other. And all of a sudden, some guy... You know, taps him on the shoulder, spins him around, and gives him a big hug. Guess who that guy was? It was Magic Johnson. And what did he tell Smerich? He said, now you're a Laker. So it went from, at the beginning, get the fuck off the bus, you're not a Laker. Get the fuck out of here. To winning that championship, now you're a Laker. That was an awesome story from Magic Johnson. So it all goes back to Michael Jordan. Yeah, Michael Jordan could have been a son of... Michael Jordan as a teammate might have been a son of a bitch, and he might have been hard, and he might have been tough, and he might have been demanding, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, if you're speaking about from Rick Barry all the way to Magic Johnson, all the way to Chris Paul, all the way to Kobe Bryant, all the way to LeBron James, when these superstars and these franchise players, I mean, Tim Duncan, when... 
Tony Parker came into the league. Tim Duncan didn't even speak to him. Didn't even talk to him his first year. Tony Duncan will say that. I mean, Tony Parker will say that. TD didn't say anything to me the first year I was I was with the team. Guess I had to prove myself before, you know, he gave me the respect of being talked to. So, you know, that's just some that's just some shit right there, man. And like I said, it was just interesting to uh to see that. And again, moving forward with this documentary that they're gonna be doing with the Bulls Championship, man, I am just looking forward to see some more of the inner workings of what was a dysfunctional, but ultimately a joyous season as far as being a championship team for the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could beat us. So glad that you could see us. So glad that you could meet us. So glad that you could be with us. Get the fuck off the bus. You're not a Laker. Get the fuck off the bus. Yeah, I know we let you score 35. We wanted you to score 35, you stupid motherfucker. Woo, Magic Johnson, my man. Speaking about what's going down in the world of sports. There, I tell you what. I want to get into something just a little bit different. Um... The top basketball high school prospect, the name is Jalen Green. He's a five-star, five-tool guy, number one prospect in the 2020 ESPN 100. He's bypassing college, and he's going to the G League. And this is what he told Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports. He said, I wanted to get better overall and prepare myself for the NBA because that's my ultimate goal. Everything was planned out right. Everything was planned out right and set up for me to succeed. I think this was a good decision at the end of the day. I'm still going to be able to go back to college and finish school. I think he wants to be a veterinarian or be something, a dentistry or something like that, ophthalmologist, I don't know. I'm, go- I'm still going back. I'm still going to be able to go back to college and finish school. So it's not really that I'm missing out on college because I can go back and finish whenever I need to. School is a big thing in my family. And he said that he would have committed to Memphis if he had gone to college, smart choice. A guy whose game is similar to Penny Hardaway. That would have been a really intelligent choice for him to uh, go ahead and do that. Now, Green stands about six feet five. He weighs 170 pounds. Again, he's a five-star prospect in the 24-7 sports composite rankings. He's the number three overall player in that uh, ranking, the number two combo guard, and the number two player in the state of California for the 2020 class. Evan Mobley is the number one player, seven-footer. From one of the uh, uh, from one of the private schools, he's going to USC, Andy Infeld. 
I mean, you think a guy who's seven feet tall, you know, you, you think a guy that, that good, who really wanted to go ahead and have a long, outstanding NBA career, you would think that he would maybe go to a school where the coach played in the NBA for about 18 years, one of the greatest players who played a Hall of Famer, top 50 NBA basketball player when they came out with the when they came out with the rankings, a guy who had been an NBA coach, assistant coach for 15 years, a guy who learned under Pat Riley, uh, who's a Hall of Fame coach, a guy who learned, learned under Stan Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy, Steve Clifford, a guy who would, you know, a guy like that, you would, you would think that one of these motherfuckers would actually do the right thing instead of going to Andy Enfield, who last time I checked hadn't put anybody in the pros of any, any type of substance. You think the guy who is... That good, such as Evan Mobley, would go to a coach who coached himself at Dal Ming, coached himself at Dwight Howard. I mean, you think Coach Dikembe Mutombo when he was playing, Coach Alonzo Mourning when he was playing, helping those guys out. You would think a guy with a brain in his head would actually go to a school like, oh, I don't know, being coached by a guy like, oh, I don't know, Patrick Ewing, you're damn right, of Georgetown University. Ah, but he wants to go to USC. Okay, we'll have fun. You're going to be close to home. Zip dee doo doo da, whoop dee damn do. Damn, man, why don't these guys go to Georgetown University? It just behooves me to, to, to say once again 15 years as an assistant head coach in the NBA, and they run pro sets. I digress. But basically, so Green is going to be going to the G League, and they say that he's, uh, you know, he's got games similar to, wait for it, Penny Hardaway, Kobe Bryant, you know, of that ilk. You know, a, a slashing guard, uber athleticism, you know, jumps out of the gym, all of those type of things. So, you know, sources say that because he's going to the G League, well, the G League contract that he has is going to be worth somewhere around $500,000, half a mil, not bad for an 18-year-old. And he also has endorsement opportunities. And the G League is planning to launch a new team in Southern California with Green at the centerpiece. And... Whether he was going to go to Auburn and play for Bruce Pearl or whether he was going to, again, his choice was to go to Memphis. Whenever he was going to be coming out, which was probably going to be one year, he was going to be the number one player picked in the 2021 NBA draft. I'm telling you, man, that puts a whole lot of pressure on someone of that age and inexperience. You know what I'm talking about? Especially when there's a situation where, I mean, this wasn't like LeBron James in terms of, yeah, LeBron James had all this fame and everything coming to him the moment that he destroyed Lenny Cook at a summer basketball tournament. And then word started getting around about how great this guy was, and then everything just took off, and ESPN got their claws on this guy in terms of, you know, putting him in front of the spotlight, and Bill Walton and Dick Vitale and those guys going to see his high school game against Oak Hill and all of those things when he was playing down in Akron. So by the time that... LeBron James, who is a pretty, you know, he's a, he's a guy who's a little bit different than everybody else to be able to handle this and be, be able to handle it as well as he's done throughout his entire career. By the time he came to really get the spotlight on him when he became the number one pick of the Cleveland Cavaliers, he had had years of experience of dealing with being a quote-unquote celebrity for him to start the path toward what he is today. Uh, Green really hasn't had that type of that type of pressure. Really hasn't had that type of of uh, you know no notoriety splashed on him 
like LeBron James had. So to go ahead and have all of these things, I mean, he he hasn't even had the same amount of exposure or experience or attention or spotlight put on him as LaMelo Ball has, who played a year over in Australia, and now he's projected to be a lottery pick in this upcoming 2020 NBA draft. So a lot of things in terms of a lot of responsibilities that are going to be put on this guy when you're speaking about you know him being a guy where they're going to be He's going to be the centerpiece of an entirely new squad in the G League. But, uh, yeah. But you know what? I, I say this. And this is where it really got me. There's a couple of avenues that I want to get to. Later on, I want to discuss, as far as Jalen Green going to the G League, what this means for college basketball, what this means for the NBA, and really what it means for minor league basketball whenever they return to normal, to where they're going to be playing these games. What does it mean for the G League, the minor league teams, and all these other things moving forward as far as basketball is concerned? But when I first read the story and I first started putting this podcast together and discussing what I really wanted to uh, talk about, I, I said, you know what? You know, it's about time as of right now. Remember in the first segment, I was talking about how you know the Chicago Bulls were planning to rebuild even though they were a championship team at that time because they wanted to have something down the future, down the road. They wanted this to last. They didn't want to do what the Boston Celtics did, would be, which was basically not be prepared for when McHale and Parrish and Bird and those guys started breaking down and you saw the mediocrity that the Boston Celtics went through. Well, this is the same thing with the NBA in terms of, all right, now it's about time we need to start grooming somebody out there to be the next LeBron James. And when I say the next LeBron James, you have to take a look. He's in his 17th season, speaking of LeBron. And look, at the age of 35, I'm looking. I'm looking here, I'm looking there, I'm looking everywhere, and I'm thinking. But in his 17th season in the league, James is averaging 25 points a game. He's averaging 10 and a half assists a game. He's averaging eight rebounds a game. He's shooting 50% on 20 field goal attempts per game. He's 57% on two-point attempts. I get it. I get it. He's still one, if not the best player still in the NBA. But you also have to remember this, man. How much longer can a guy who's already eighth in minutes all time at over 48,000, how much longer can this guy go on? And we're not going to be asking for someone to be the next LeBron James this season or next season. We're speaking about maybe three or four years down the road. LeBron... What he's doing right now ain't human in terms of how great he's still able to play in the 17th season, the way that he redefined and readjusted his game, the same thing that Michael had to do, the same thing that Kobe had to do, the same thing that Tim Duncan had to do, the same thing that Larry had to do. All the great players go ahead and do this. But still, you're also speaking about LeBron James. As we see right now, physically, while he's still great, physically, he's not the LeBron James of four, six. Eight, ten years ago, of course he's not when you log that type of minutes. And the 48,000 that I was talking about, <coughs> that also doesn't take into account the fact of he played of all the playoff games that he's played in all of the international competition that he's been in. We're just speaking about regular season. So in a situation like that, yeah, the NBA really needs to start thinking about, okay, when the 2022, 23, 24 season rolls around and LeBron James is no longer the LeBron James, when LeBron James does his farewell tour, 
who is going to be that guy? Who is going to be the guy to take the torch, to take the mantle, and go ahead and be the next superstar, to be the next public figure, to be the next world representation of the greatness of what the NBA is all about? Because this ain't football. This ain't, and I'm not talking about the football. I'm talking about American football. This is not baseball. The NBA, for years, under the tutelage and the commissionership of David Stern, has always said front and center, we're going to market our our NBA stars more than we're going to be marketing our teams. So, yeah, you have historic franchises like the Boston Celtics and like the Los Angeles Lakers, and if they could get their act together like the New York Knicks. But for the most part, unlike when baseball is trying to talk about his history and talk about his past and talk about the glory teams like the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox and all those, those type of things. And you talk about the NFL where they always want to put put into the front of the camera of the teams like the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers and really let that be the star of the show. And the NBA is like, no, 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 no. We're going to be talking about the LeBron James. We're going to be talking about the Michael Jordans. And that way, it minimizes the fact that, you know what? The Los Angeles Lakers don't have to be dominant. The New York Knicks don't have to be dominant. The um, the, the Lakers, the Knicks, the uh, those, those historical great teams, the Boston Celtics, they don't have to be great all the time. The Philadelphia 76ers, they don't have to be great all the time. We can have the best player on the planet be playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers and still have our ratings go through the roof. So because of that, the league is so is driven by stars. Who's going to be that guy? Who's going to be the next icon of the NBA? Taking a look right now, who's it going to be? I mean, and, and, and basically also what we're talking about right now, what does that definition mean? When we're speaking about who is going to be the next global icon, who's going to be the next face of the league, who's going to be the next LeBron James, what does that entail? Because just like the MVP vote, just like when we discuss who's the best athlete, who's the best player in the NBA, who's this, that, and the other, who's the best this, who's the best that, our definitions of what that is is completely different. You could ask 10 reputable people, about the definition of an MVP or who's the next great player or who's going to be the guy that's going to lead the NBA and be the face of the league and all those type of things. You could ask 10 reputable, intelligent people about that, asking for their definition, and you could get 10 completely different answers. Which one is right? Which one holds more validity? We don't know. Who knows? It's all in the eye of the beholder, all in the mind of the thinker in terms of trying to distinguish which correct definition of who's going to be the next LeBron James you're going to clutch on to and you're going to ride with that definition. We don't know. Who knows? I mean, LeBron, you're speaking about a guy who right now is ranked number two behind Cristiano Ronaldo as the most famous athlete on the planet. 45 million followers on social media, $52 million per year in endorsements. He has the NBA's top endorsement portfolio. Here's a guy who's up also also showing the new school, also showing those that guess what? You can have a conscious. You can go ahead and speak about social issues and you can still worry and you don't have to worry about it hurting your brand. You don't have to worry about it hurting your profit margin. You don't have to worry about it hurting your endorsement deals. Remember Michael Jordan? Remember the the tack and the philosophy that Michael Jordan, hey, you know what? Republicans buy sneakers too. Remember how mum and how noncommittal and how silent People like Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods were, Derek Jeter was, when they were making hundreds of millions of dollars and they wanted to 
protect that by not being, as we say, by being as vanilla as possible off the court. Well, LeBron James is saying, no, you can go ahead and you can call the president of the United States a bum, even though he is. You can go ahead and you can give your endorsement for a Kennedy. You can go ahead and talk about social issues. You can go ahead and talk about what it's like to be a black man in the United States of America and talk about some of the disparities, talk about some of the negativism, talk about some of the things that black folks have to go through every day. You can go ahead and talk about those things and you don't have to worry about Nike abandoning you. You don't have to worry about your sponsors and your endorsers leaving you. You don't have to do all those things. In fact, you can even be more of a help if you show some substance and if you show some intelligence, it can not it can not only increase your value, it can also uh, help you in the long term. So that's what we're talking about in terms of who's going to be that next guy, who's willing to do that. My definition is, I mean, who's going to be the guy that's going to be able to get all the Twitter followers? Who is going to be that global icon? Who's going to be the guy that's going to be talking about inequality in America? Who's going to be the guy that's going to be talking about police brutality? Who is the guy that's going to be getting the who's going to whose endorsements of political candidates is, is going to be is going to be wanted, is going to be asked for? Who's going to be that guy? And as I take a look at the league right now, yes, you have your Steph Currys, yes, you have your Russell Westbrooks, yes, you have your Kevin Durant, yes, you have your Kyrie Irvings. You have all those guys who right now who are as we say, piggybacking, shall we say, off of LeBron James. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say uh, coattail riding when you take a, someone like Steph Curry who made the top 10 as far as the most famous athletes in the world by ESPN in 2019, a guy who has 23 million followers on Instagram, second only behind LeBron. He's third in jersey sales. I mean, his endorsers include Chase and Nissan Motor and Under Armour. We're talking about a production company that he has, Unanimous Media, that develops deals with Sony Pictures. You're talking about a guy who right now changed the way basketball is played because of his shooting prowess, the greatest shooter that we've ever seen in NBA history. Yeah, Steph right, is right there. I mean, in terms of being a global icon for the NBA, if LeBron is that Michael Jordan in that sense, then Steph Curry right now could be considered the Scottie Pippen of that. You take a look at someone like a Kyrie Irving in terms of a guy who's helping the NBA reach status that maybe only a few of the premier leagues in football across the world are reaching in terms of their popularity, in terms of their viewership, in terms of their importance, speaking about the NBA. Kyrie Irving is also a guy who's helping forge that, or is helping to uh, move that needle. 12 and a half million followers on Instagram. He's 10th in Jersey sales. You remember Uncle Drew? Remember that uh, movie that he made? Bombed in the box office, but still, you're talking about a guy whose Nike shoe is among the NBA's top sellers. And he was also the, on the cover of uh, the 2K18, which was the uh, video game. You're speaking about a guy like, as I mentioned before, Russell Westbrook, who's 12, who has 12 million followers on Instagram. You're speaking about a guy on Kevin Durant. When he's not trolling people on Twitter, he has 10 million followers. I mean, he's putting together companies and such. So we have all these guys right now who are helping James Harden, who are helping the NBA right now, Chris Paul. I mean, how many State Farm commercials do we have to see with Chris Paul? Even though the latest one is a lot better than the uh, last couple of uh, State Farm commercials that he's had. But for the most part, man, you watch any sporting event. I mean, how many uh, Chris Paul State Farm commercials are there? I mean, this guy's almost becoming like Peyton Manning in terms of you're watching an NBA game and 
seemed like, remember when you used to watch the NFL game and Peyton Manning commercial seemed like there was a Peyton Manning commercial almost on every other commercial? It seems that way now with Chris Paul, but building the brand and also building that global recognition and giving him a voice and giving him a platform. President of the uh, Players Union since 2013, holding some clout, making moves, doing some things to shape people's minds, shaping the consciousness. With the NBA making improvements to communities because of his leadership, which is which is helping society. Who is going to be that next guy? Who is going to be the leader of the pack? And who are going to be the guys that are going to surround him that are also going to be helping that next global iconic superstar keep the NBA moving forward? Who is that guy going to be? As of right now, if I take a look here on, here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. If I take a look at this, and I take a look at who's going to be that guy in the year 2026 in the NBA season. Who is going to be that guy? Who is going to be that next LeBron James when he's gone? The leaders of the pack right now, you would have to say, is Giannis Adenokupo of the Milwaukee Bucks, Luka Doncic of the Dallas Mavericks, and Zion Williamson of the New Orleans Pelicans. These three players have been the focus of ESPN, TNT, and other media outlets this season. Not Steph, not Kyrie, not Kevin Durant, of course, because they've been injured. But still, I, 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 I gradually see the NBA right now starting to make that move, starting to make that turn, you know, in terms of, okay, who's that next guy? Because we've already talked Steph Curry to death. We've already, LeBron James is the lightning rod. He'll, already, he'll always be there. Kevin Durant, his mercurial attitude and personality and persona and such, I mean, he'll always be... Uh, a person who we can always come back to. But, you know, there's only so much of information. There's only so new crevices that we can go down when we're speaking about a James Harden, when we're speaking about a Steph Curry, especially the success that the Golden State Warriors have had and how they've just dominated the media for that period of time when they were basically changing the way that the games were played. So it's like, okay, in this society where it's an ADD society, Who's going to be that next guy? Who are we going to be looking at? And you can see almost as early as his freshman year at Duke, early in the season, you saw that it was like, wait a minute. We've got a, we've got somebody here. This kid Zion, 6'6", 285 pounds, 45 pounds, a 45-inch vertical leap, the most unique physical specimen ever to come into the NBA. Wait a minute. We've got something here. And he's humble and he's soft-spoken. We've got something here. You take a look at Giannis Adenokupo. We've got something here. So the NBA is starting with those three. Luka Doncic. We've got something here. So the NBA is starting to make that turn. I guess you could say the first three contestants in terms of who's going to be that guy. Who can we really start grooming if you're the NBA, if you're media outlets? Who is going to be that guy who when LeBron says, See you later. Which guy right now for the younger generation to where people who are going to be following the NBA, people who are going to be watching the NBA, people who are going to be buying the merchandise, people who are going to want to see the sneakers, people who are going to be following them on Twitter, that younger generation who's right now too too young to remember an 18, 22, 25-year-old LeBron James in the next five, six, seven years, who's going to be that guy for that younger generation to say, that's my guy. When I was growing up, Magic Johnson was my guy. Or the other folks, uh, Larry Bird was my guy. 
In my community, it was Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Those were my guys. Then you move to the next generation. It was Michael Jordan. That's my guy. And then the generation after that, Kobe Bryant. That's my guy. And then the generation after that, LeBron James. That's my guy. Who is going to be for the next generation? Who's going to be? That's my guy. Is it going to be Luka? Is it going to be Giannis? Is it going to be Zion? Is it going to be John Morant? Is it going to be DeAndre Fox? Who is that guy going to be? Is it going to be Anthony Davis? Who is that guy going to be? Is it going to be Damian Lillard? Probably not. Damian is a little bit too old. But who is it going to be? Is it going to be Kawhi? Is it going to be? Who is it going to be? That's what the NBA is taking a look at right now. That's what it's looking right right now. And I'm, I'm intrigued. I really am. I'm looking forward to it. Because you got a guy like Giannis. Great personality. Fabulous personality. All right. He's, 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 he's a guy where, you know, we could market this guy well. Okay. His English ain't the greatest. But, you know, again, he's not from the United States. And he's, was, he's from a country where English is not the major language. But this is a guy where you could tell. Nike, who can make and break superstars with the best of them. If it ain't going to be Zion, the number one client in the next couple of years is going to be Giannis. I mean, they've already extended this deal and gave him a pay raise from 20000 to $9 million. So he doesn't have a shoe. You don't see him too much as far as Nike in commercials where he's the spotlight. When is Nike going to put a campaign around this guy? When is Giannis going to be in the summers going to China like James Harden does? Or maybe going overseas like NBA players like Clay Thompson and, um, and Chris Paul and those guys? to start building their brand, to start building his brand and start becoming that global icon, that global superstar, especially as you're speaking about playing for a team like the Milwaukee Bucks, who when the postponement of the league happened, Milwaukee had the number one record in the league. So if the Bucks go ahead and win this championship and the style of play that Giannis plays with, and once again, he has to look, he has to game. This is not a guy who, quote unquote, is going to scare white folks. He's going to scare those who are going to be paying the season tickets, who are going to be paying to see him play. And again, he's at the age right now where that younger generation can claim, not LeBron, not Kobe, not anybody else. Giannis is my guy. See it. I like it. I'm looking at it. Now, can he do that in Milwaukee? If you take a look at the global icons, a lot of those guys, with the exception of LeBron and Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, those guys, if you're speaking about quote-unquote global icons, they don't play in a market like Milwaukee. And the only reason why LeBron, first of all, LeBron was so incredible that it didn't matter where he was going to be playing, that he was going to be getting a whole lot of depth. But also the fact that the narrative, the storyline was perfect. Hometown boy from Akron coming up to save a sports star city like Cleveland, where they hadn't won a championship since 1964. So hometown LeBron comes in, fulfills his destiny, King James. Awesome storyline, man. Awesome storyline. That's not Giannis. Giannis ain't even from this country. So Milwaukee, are they going to be able to do that? You know how much being in a small market hurt Damian Lillard right now. How it's hurting Anthony Davis. The fact that, you know what, I'm in New Orleans right now. I'm supposed to be this, that, and the other. Get me out to uh, L.A. How it's hurt Kawhi Leonard, even though Kawhi personality has hurt Kawhi out there in, in uh, Toronto. Turn down the opportunity to be the face of a country. And ooh, for Canada right now, where you see basketball being played and you see guys such as Andrew Wiggins who has the physical gifts to be the next great thing but not the mental and you have guys coming from 
Brampton, Ontario, and all these other places because of what Vince Carter did when he was up there in Toronto and Tracy McGrady, what he did when he was playing for the Raptors and Steve Nash, the success that he had being a Canadian. Ooh, could you imagine right now the next great superstar coming from the city of Toronto, coming from the city of, say, Vancouver? Ooh, that's going to open up the Canadian market for the NBA? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And except for the age and all that kind of stuff, hey, 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 we're speaking about English being the number one uh, speaking uh, language in Canada with the with the exception of Quebec and Montreal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you got Giannis right there. So also Luca. Take a look at Luca. I said this before and I'll say it again. Luca, the main advantage that he has is number one, that kid can fucking ball at 21 years old. And as fact, the guy, the guy, the basketball. Okay, I'm going to say it. The guy is a fucking basketball genius. Okay, the guy is showing signs of being a basketball genius, man. No, I ain't bullshitting. What's the guy play? And the great thing about Luca's game is that it's got staying power. You know why it's got staying power? Because he doesn't need uber athleticism to get the job done. He can triple-double your ass to death, and he doesn't need to have a 40-something-inch vertical leap. He doesn't need to be a physical freak. He doesn't need to have muscles on top of muscles. He doesn't need to have a physical advantage over everybody. I mean, that's the one thing LeBron had, right? 6'8", 250 pounds, built like a Mack truck with a fucking tremendous athlete who can jump out of the gym with basketball genius who can play four positions? What the fuck? Michael Jordan, what was his, besides his just savage competitiveness, what's the other thing? It was fucking ungodly athleticism. Luka doesn't have any of this. But like Larry Bird, what he has is a basketball IQ that's off the charts. And he has a skill set that's unbelievable for a guy who's 6'8", 240 pounds. You watch this guy play. It's like him and Nikola Jokic are probably the most cerebral basketball players out there. Because just like Luka, Jokic is not going to dominate anybody with his size and his girth and his strength and his athleticism. Like maybe someone like a Joel Embiid. He has to outthink you. And because it seems like Nikola is always two or three steps ahead, a la Larry Bird, same thing with uh, Luka Dantich. So this is a guy at 21 years old, that if he does sustain an injury or when he does reach his 30s and his physical gifts start to wane, his his vertical starts to go down a little bit more, he starts to get a little bit more pudgy, he starts to slow down a little bit more, because of his basketball skills, he can still be a formidable basketball player for the next 14, 15 years. Money, baby! And this is the guy who's built for this shit. This was a guy when he was a teenager was playing in the second best league in the world and dominating. So this bullshit doesn't surprise him. He's not in all of the NBA. The success that he's having right now, he's he he's prepared for this. He prepared, he's been prepared for this his whole life. He knows about fame. He knows about the things that come with all that kind of nonsense because he's lived it since he was 16 flipping years old. So you don't have to worry about him adjusting to fame. He's already famous. Oh, that's wonderful for the NBA, isn't it? If you're taking a look at the next LeBron James, you're taking a look at the next global icon, that's going to be awesome, ain't it? Once Luka can stop deferring to the LeBrons and other great players of the of the NBA right now, 
and he reaches 26, 27 years old, 25, 26 years old, and that league starts to become his. Ooh, with the game that he's got playing for the Dallas Mavericks. Ooh, man, 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 man. And he could be marketed as this generation's Larry Bird. Damn, man, that would be great. That would be great. That would be awesome. And let's let's call it like it is. Larry Bird was the last white superstar in the NBA. And that was what? Maybe going on 25 years ago? I mean, yeah, you can maybe talk about Steve Nash a little bit, one, two MVPs. But really, the last global icon, this, that, and the other, as far as just the uh, a basketball player, was Larry Bird. And you can't tell me, I'm sorry, this is America. This is the world that we live in. You can't tell me that advertisers in the league in general aren't yearning, aren't craving, aren't just hoping, salivating for a white superstar. For all that, 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 would, that for the NBA, for the league, for anybody, that would be awesome. And man, could you imagine, say for instance, you have that counterpoint because the league, as you know, as heavily African-American that it is, you're not going to have to look far to find uh, a rival for Luca. You just hope if he's black, he ain't going to be from Africa or he ain't going to be from another country. Uh, if he's going to be right here in America, then you've got that whole Larry Bird, Magic Johnson thing. I'm sorry. Larry Bird was awesome. Magic Johnson was awesome. They were. They were all-time top 10, top 12 players of all time. No question about it. Save the league. No question about it. But you know what made that rival so interesting? Was the contrasting style. Showtime Lakers versus meat and grind potatoes, Boston Celtics. And let's not even try to hide it. White Boston Celtics, Larry Bird, and Black Magic Johnson, Los Angeles Lakers. That black-white contrast right there, you don't think that's going to be baked into a possible rivalry if Luka continues to ascend and become that guy and become the best player in the league? You don't think that the cameras, you don't think the spotlight, you don't think that the attention, the media glow and everything else, not just from America, but from the entire world, is not going to come down on Luka Doncic? You know that it is. You know that it is. Heaven's sakes for the NBA. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm not talking about Daniel Bryan. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about who's going to be that next LeBron James. Who has the chance to be that next LeBron James? I threw out Giannis Adenokupo. I threw out Luka Doncic. And I also want to throw out now Zion Williamson. Again, 6'6", 285 pounds. This season, you look closer to about 6'4 310 pounds. The man has a 45-inch vertical leap. And you're talking about a situation where, you know what? If there was one silver lining to the NBA being canceled, possibly, it was because Zion was playing hurt. Zion had a bum knee. And it was a situation where, you know what? If Zion wasn't Zion, in terms of the hype, in terms of everything coming down, Zion really, if he had the same profile, say for instance, as a Ben Simmons or someone like a Blake Griffin when they came into the league, in all actuality, Zion should have probably just stayed out the entire season. Should have taken the entire season off and then come back and play the next season. But because of who he is, but because of all the hype that was generated, that, uh, that wasn't possible. But if you watched him play a few times for New Orleans this year, you could tell that he was laboring. And you could tell that he was out of shape. 
So this is a situation where, damn, man, yeah, you know what? Hate that the league is not playing this year, playing so far, but one player that is helping out right now is Zion Williamson to get that leg healed up and get him ready to go. But, man, a physical freak like him. And it's also a situation where Nike, again, signed him five years, $75 million shoe deal with the Jordan brand. It's the second largest rookie shoe deal in history, only trailing LeBron James' $90 million rookie deal, which he signed in 2003. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, I can see him because of the way that he's going to change the game. We've never seen an athlete like this before. We've never seen this package before in the NBA. So he has that opportunity. And again, a guy who is not a braggart, a guy who looks like he's not going to get himself in a whole bunch of trouble. Zion has that chance. But then again, there's others too. I mean, who knows, man? Who knows? You know, seven, eight years ago, was anybody expecting Steph Curry to be where he is today? I mean, we could be looking five years, six years down the road if Ben Simmons gets a jump shot. Maybe that's going to be the guy. Maybe it's going to be Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns. Maybe it's going to be John Morant. Maybe it's going to be Jaron Jackson Jr. Maybe if it's going to be, maybe it'll be someone like a Donovan Mitchell. Maybe it'll be a Kawhi Leonard if he ever finds the uh, personality that he lost. Maybe it's someone like a Jason Tatum. Hell, maybe it's someone like an Anthony Edwards. Hell, maybe it's someone like an Imani Bates who was just named the top player in high school despite him being a sophomore, six foot eight from Michigan. Maybe it's someone like that. Maybe it's someone we don't even know. But it's going to be interesting, man, because it's time. It's time to make that move. It's time to make that thought process be for real. Make it a reality. Four, five, six years from now. The 2024, 25, 26 season. Who is going to be that next LeBron James? Who's going to take that mantle? Who's going to assume that role? Who is it going to be? Because you take a look right now, man. I mean, just as far as the global icons, they're getting old, Jack. They're getting old, Buster. They're getting old, Jose. They're getting old, my man. You're taking a look at Lionel Messi is 31 years old. Ronaldo is 35 years old. You know, who's going to be that next global superstar? Roger Federer is 38 years old. LeBron is 35. Tiger Woods is 44. Nadal, Rafael Nadal is 33. Kevin Durant is 31. Five, six, seven, eight years from now, who in the world is going to be that guy? Is it going to be Paul Pogba? Is it going to be Neymar? Is it going to be Kylian Mbappe? Who's it going to be? Is it going to be Luca? Is it going to be Zion? Who's going to be that guy that we know by just one name? It'll be interesting. It's all out there, man. It's all out there. There's this guy, this cricket guy, who's playing cricket out there in India. Guy has 102 followers, 102 million followers. More than any baseball football player combined. If you take a look at the top 15, you tell, I'll probably take a look at all of the baseball players and add up their Twitter followers. Not going to be even close to this guy, Vitrot Croyle, 31 years old. The guy has 102 million followers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And that's the most of any athlete combined. Man, no sleep on cricket. Over there in India? Over there in that part of the world? That, that's huge. If you think about, the, if, if you answer the question for baseball in terms of what's the most popular sport in the world that involves a ball and a bat, you would be wrong. Cricket. Never watched a cricket game, but give it mad respect. Give it mad respect over there. So basically, basically what I'm saying is in the next couple of years, there's an opening. There's an opening for somebody to be that guy. 
to be that global icon? Who's it going to be? Who's going to be the leader as far as the NBA is concerned? Luka, Zion, Giannis, who's it going to be? I can't wait to find out. When the world of sports, I'm your host, Wonder Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Ooh, I'm just getting giddy thinking about what's going to be happening as far as, Lord, please let me be around for the 2025-26 NBA season so I can see who's going to be the man as far as the NBA is concerned. Love it, man. I mean, you know, the global, the, the icons of the NBA. I mean, we're speaking about George Mikan. We're speaking about Bob Cousy. Mikan was the first superstar of the league, gave it this credibility. Bob Cousy brought flair and showmanship to the game, then of course you had Bill Russell versus Wilt Chamberlain, the great David versus Goliath, the greatest physical wonder and scoring machine in Chamberlain against the greatest winner and defensive player of all time in Bill Russell. You had Oscar Robertson and Jerry West who brought scoring and greatness from the guard position. You had Dr. J who brought the inner city playground and dunk into the game from the ABA to the NBA. And of course you had Magic and Bird saving the NBA from poor ratings and poor image and scandal and all of those other things with team play and enthusiasm to play and winning basketball and Bird being a 6'9 forward, which was unheard of, and even more of uh, Unicorn Magic Johnson being a 6'9 point guard and his flair and his love of the game, changing the game around, which set the foundation for Michael Jordan to come around and take what Elgin Baylor and Connie Hawkins and others bringing up to the next level and you know, Kobe and Shaq and all those guys who were these global icons who just, I'm, I'm just, and now we have LeBron and these guys, so I'm just interested as I get older. Because you know, what you get older, it just changes in terms of your appreciation and what you admire about these guys. I mean, I wanted to be living the life. I wanted to be Magic Johnson when I was growing up. I wanted to be part of that Magic Johnson, Isaiah, Mark Aguirre trio who would go around in the summers and have a ball and have a blast in L.A. and Magic living out there in L.A. and banging all the chicks and doing all his things and winning championships and having a basketball in his in his house and everything. So, man, when I was a impressionable teenager, man, Magic Johnson was my guy. But then again, you know, if you move forward and you look at these global icons, my admiration for someone like an MJ or someone like a LeBron James or someone like a Kobe as a basketball player because of my age, because of my maturity, is a lot different than it was, say, when I was, you know, doing my thing with Magic Johnson in terms of my fandom. So moving forward, as I get older and as I adjust and as I, you know, get older and whatever happens to me happens to me both on the physical and the mental especially the way this world is changing and this world is introducing new things and the way that I look at things and the way that I never thought of before. It's going to be interesting to see the next athlete who comes into our lives and takes that crown and takes that medal and takes that baton and goes and does the things that LeBron and who basically as far as off the field is concerned or off the basketball court is concerned, he ain't going to just shut up and dribble. He is going to go down the same avenue in terms of trying to make an impact 
using the ways that of a of a Muhammad Ali or a Jim Brown or a Joe Lewis or Arthur Ashe or a Jackie Robinson or a Kurt Flood. He's going to do that differently, other than Michael Jordan, who was doing it the passive way, not really doing anything in Tiger Woods and Derek Jeter and such, following that mantra. So, just interesting, man. I mean, every era, every way tips and turns, the way everything flows. It's just going to be interesting. And that's what makes sports so interesting, right? That makes what sports that makes sports so awesome. As I mentioned before, it is the ultimate reality show. It's the only reality show that we get in this world today. And it's fantastic, and that's the reason why I enjoy sports as much as I do. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So moving back, because if you remember a little while ago, I was speaking about Jalen Green, and I was speaking about this kid who was one of the top high school basketball players this year, and instead of going to Memphis or going to college, he's going to bypass, and he's going to go straight into the G League, and he's going to be getting a contract in the neighborhood of $500,000 with the opportunity to earn endorsements. And basically, what does that mean? I mean, the NBA, because of this, is now grooming these guys to become the next LeBron James, and that's how I got on the whole LeBron James, who's going to be that next global icon superstar kick. But, I mean, you take a look at what does it mean as far as college basketball and the NBA is concerned. When you have someone like uh, uh, Green, this kid Green, who is deciding to take his talents to the G League and not go the traditional route and go through the college route. Because one of the things I think that can help the NBA and bring in another audience is the fact that having these guys and how much, and, and you saw how much it helped Zion. You saw how advantageous it was for Zion to go ahead and play at Duke. I don't think Zion would have gotten the platform to show off his skills and with that have the momentum of what he's trying to do as far as becoming one of the greats of the game and building his brand and becoming a quote-unquote global icon and all of those types of things, I think that he would be farther behind in his quest to do those things and that recognition if he had gone straight from high school in South Carolina to playing in the G League. Well, this kid, Jalen Green, is opting to do that. He's saying, you know what, I ain't going to play a year for Penny Hardaway. I'm going to go ahead and make my $500,000 and hopefully get some endorsements and play for this team in Southern California. It's really... Again, a situation where this is not really the first time in the last couple of years that someone like uh, Green has done this. If you speak about Emmanuel Moutier in 2014, I mean, this was a guy who was a five-star recruit. He committed to play at uh, SMU for Larry Brown, but then he decommitted because of some, uh, I think, academic issues. So he was going ahead. He went ahead and played in China. So he signed a one-year, $1.2 million contract. He averaged 18 points, six rebounds, six assists per game. In China, that doesn't transfer into the NBA because so far he has been a BUST disappointment. Tony Ferguson, a thumb maker in 2016. Ferguson was the number 11 ranked player in that class. He decommitted to play for Arizona because he wanted to play professionally in Australia for the Adelaide 36ers. No, not the Philadelphia 76ers, the Adelaide 36ers, where he averaged four and a half points, one rebound in 15 minutes per game. He came back and was a late first-round draft pick by the Oklahoma City Thunder. And sure, he's still out on him. Thon Maker went straight from high school to the NBA draft. He was the number 10 player picked by the Milwaukee Bucks. Here was a guy who didn't do a China route or a Australia route or even a G League route. This was a guy who was able 
to convince the NBA that he graduated from Orangeville Prep in California in 2015. This was a situation I saw him play when he was going into his senior year out here in Vegas. When the AAU come through, the Nike and the Adidas summer camps, they come out here in Vegas. And I just like to see what uh, prospects Georgetown is interested in and go ahead and watch them play in person. But I remember watching Thon Maker play, and I was like, good, but he could go ahead and go to college. But it was a situation where he came over from the Sudan, and he had gone to different high schools and being bounced around. So it was kind of like, how is this kid again going to be able to play college basketball when he's going from school and school and school and school? But, you know, so basically what he did to bypass going to Australia or going to any other place to play was he convinced that, you know what, he graduated high school in June of 2015, but he decided to stay another year as a postgraduate student by his own choosing. So because of that, where the league said that you have to be out of high school for a year before you become eligible to play in the NBA. That's exactly what he did. So, I mean, you're speaking to someone as recently as 2019. You remember LaMelo Ball, right? R.J. Hampton? They didn't play college basketball. I mean, man, what was LaMelo's journey? I mean, he went from playing in Lithuania. No, he went from playing high school basketball in California, Chino Hills. Then he went out to uh, some squad in Lithuania. Then he came back and played at Sprite Academy. And then now he played in um, Australia. Now he's going to be one of the top choices in the NBA. So, I mean, really, this is nothing new when you think about it. I mean, Green's not even the only player in his graduating class that's bypassing college. If you speak about uh, five-star forward Isaiah Todd, who was supposed to be going to Jawan Howard in Michigan, well, he's not going to be playing. He's going to look to play professionally. Same thing with McCourt Maker and Jamar Bowcamp. Kenyon Martin Jr. You remember Kenyon Martin, right? The forward for um, the New Jersey Nets, uh, former number one pick in the draft out of Cincinnati. Well, his son, who played up at uh, played in L.A. or played up at the same school that the LeBron, LeBron James kid is playing up there, he's going to go ahead and play in the uh, play somewhere professionally next year. So, I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I wish the kid good luck, but this is not something West like out of this world or earth shattering or anything like this. This has been going on now for a while. So when you speak about this and you talk about, well, you know, how is this going to affect college basketball? Because now you're speaking about, oh my goodness gracious, is, are we going to get to a point now to where five-star players, top 10, top 15 players are now going to be declaring to try to go to the G League or try to go a certain different route and not go to college. And because of these top five, top 10, top, top 15 five-star recruits are not going to be going to, co- going to college to play college basketball, is that now going to affect the popularity of college basketball? Hardly. None. They won't have any effects of this. None at all. None at all. If you think about it, man, if you think about all the great basketball players, who never stepped foot onto a college campus to play college basketball. If you speak of the LeBrons and the KGs and the Kobe's and the T-Macs and the Amari Stoudemire and Dwight Howard and the Charlotte Lewis and Lou Williams, Tyson Chandler, all of these guys who are some going down as the greatest basketball players of all time, some who are NBA champions, some who are multiple-time All-Pros, MVPs, all those types of things, never once played college basketball. Last time I checked, Despite the pandemic, college basketball is still running. 
The most important things about college basketball is its tournaments. The NCAA tournament in March, March Madness, is the most important thing for college basketball. As long as you still have that, and as long as you're still able to do your office pools and still bet on that, you'll always have room for college basketball without a shadow of a doubt. Because college basketball relies on teams and coaches more than the NBA. In college, the superstars are the coaches and are the teams. If you're speaking about a Coach K, a Bill Self, a Tom Izzo, John Calipari, Jim Beheim, Roy Williams, Rick Pitino, before them, you're speaking about John Thompson, Bobby Knight, Denny Crum, Dean Smith, John Cheney at Temple. These guys are superstars. These guys were faces of the program. When you're speaking about Duke basketball, you're speaking about Coach Krzyzewski. If you're speaking about um, Kansas, you're speaking about Bill Self. If you're speaking about Georgetown, of course, you're speaking about John Thompson. If you're speaking about Indiana, of course, you're speaking about Bobby Knight. If you're speaking about Kentucky, you're speaking about Adolph Rupp and John Calipari. Those are the superstars. When you're speaking about the NBA, name me a superstar coach in the NBA. Name me somebody that you can consider themselves a superstar. I'm, I'm not talking about a great coach. I'm not talking about a Hall of Fame coach in terms of his acumen, in terms of his winning. Name me a coach. Maybe you could name Pat Riley. Maybe. Maybe you could name someone like, uh, who else? No, no one else, really. You can't name anybody else if you really think about it. Maybe a Pat Riley. Maybe a Phil Jackson. Who else? Greg Popovich is not a guy who's a quote-unquote superstar. I bet you for the most part, Greg Popovich is known more for his criticism, his correct criticism of the idiot that we have in the Oval Office right now more than he is as a basketball coach. We're speaking about, I'm speaking about superstar celebrity coaches. You have them in college, especially if you're talking about a Lawrence, Kansas, if you're talking about a Flint, Michigan, if you're speaking about a Lexington, Kentucky, if you're speaking about a Syracuse, New York, if you're speaking about a Chapel Hill, North Carolina, yeah, if you're speaking about a Louisville, Kentucky, those coaches are superstars in those regions. There is no NBA coach that's a superstar anywhere. Maybe, possibly, possibly, maybe San Antonio with Greg Popovich, where San Antonio Spurs, that's the only squad out there in terms of a professional franchise and the success that they've had. But I don't care. Rick Carlisle is an awesome coach. He ain't a superstar in Dallas. You're speaking about a Doc Rivers, the coach of the Los Angeles Clippers. He ain't a superstar in Los Angeles County or in Southern California. You're speaking about all of those guys. You can't name, name me the coach of the New York Knicks right now. Name me the coach of the Orlando Magic right now. Name me the coach of the Phoenix Suns right now. Name me the coach of the Indiana Pacers right now. If you're just a decent sports fan or even just a pretty good NBA fan, you don't know. But you know that Duke is synonymous with Coach K. You know that Georgetown is synonymous with John Thompson. You know that Louisville is synonymous with Denny Crum and Rick Pitino. You know that North Carolina is synonymous with Dean Smith and Roy Williams. That's not the case in the NBA. So if you're speaking about, well, what type of damage, what type of effect will the NBA, well, excuse me, will college basketball have if players, the top five, top ten, five-star recruits, one and dones, don't go to college? It's not going to have any effect at all, at all because the real superstars are the coaches. And the last time I checked, you can coach if you take a look at Coach K, Coach Self, Coach Izzo, you can coach 20, 30, 40 years if you want to and maintain that greatness. Also, another reason why these five-star recruits 
bypassing college Windward college basketball on Wendell's World of Sports with your host, Wendell Wallace, explaining why it's because the rivals will always remain the same. I mean, just because the top five, top ten players won't be going to either Duke or North Carolina, that doesn't lessen the rivalry between Duke and North Carolina. The same thing with Georgetown and Syracuse. The same thing with Louisville versus Kentucky. The same thing with Xavier versus Cincinnati. The same thing with Utah versus BYU. The same thing with Indiana versus Purdue. They don't need five-star recruits. They don't need NBA talent. They don't need lottery picks to make those rivalries significant. They just don't. They don't at all. So that's also one of the reasons why. I mean, the most popular basketball players over the past 15 years were not one-and-dones, if you think about it. Jameer Nelson wasn't a one-and-done. Adam Morrison of Gonzaga wasn't a one-and-done. Jimmer Fredette wasn't a one-and-done. One, one same with J.J. Reddick, Doug McDermott, same Shane Battier, Tyler Hanborough, Jerry McNamara. These guys are in college basketball lore. Those guys weren't one-and-dones. Those guys didn't stick around and become number one draft picks. So you still have very talented players still going to college. You're still going to have Evan Mobley, as I mentioned before, going to USC. Cade Cunningham going to Oklahoma State. Scotty Barnes going to Florida. Terrence Clark going to Kentucky. Brandon Boston Jr. going to Kentucky. Joari Sibley going to Georgetown. Damn right! So you still got those guys doing that. It won't affect college basketball at all. It will not. So you know what we're going to do? You know what we're going to be thinking about? You know what we're going to be talking about? You know what we're going to be taking this? You know what we're going to be taking this opinion? Where we're going to be taking these thoughts? Here's where we're going to be taking it to. word to the streets. We're taking the thoughts and opinions to the streets because they need to be heard. They need to be heard in Los Angeles, California. They need to be heard in Seattle, Washington. They need to be heard in Los Gales, Texas. They need to be heard in Miami, Florida. They need to be heard in Indianapolis, Indiana. They need to be heard in Boston, Massachusetts. They need to be heard in Richmond, Virginia. They need to be, oh, goodness gracious, Liz Morgan is uh, walking down here on, on Raw. <laughs> Pretty good looking woman. But basically, they need to be heard on Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace. I get Liz Morgan and uh, Mandy Rose mixed up. I took a I took a picture with um, yeah, she's, she's attractive. I took a picture with uh, Mandy Rose and uh, her partner, whose name I forgot right now. And uh, you know, sometimes when you're on, when you see these women on camera and everything, it's like you get up close to them or this, that, and the other, and you say, "Ah, yeah, man, overrated." This, that, and the other. Mandy Rose is not overrated. <laughs> I mean, her her mother and father should be damn proud. They produce something that looked like that. That is one attractive, good-looking woman. Um, I don't know. I think she was dating Dolph Ziggler for a while or something like that. But 
who's ever dating her, congratulations. You should be very proud of yourself because Mandy Rose is one fine-looking woman. Even though I think for a while she was dating Sonia, Sonia Deville. Sonia Deville is another very attractive woman. I mean, because that's, that's a good-looking woman. So Liz Morgan, Sonia Deville, and Mandy Rose. Three very attractive young ladies doing some work for the WWE. There you go. Wendell's World of Sports, that's my WWE portion of the, of the, of the podcast. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about the decision by Jalen Green going from high school to the G League. Oh, we already talked about the situation between what does it mean for the for college basketball. Is now this going to start a whole floodgate of people, of high school prospects going to the G League? Or Because I think the thing is, is that the NBA is trying to, trying to, Put together some type of basketball post academy for a year, for those who don't want to go to the uh, go to college. So basically, according to uh, Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports, this select team is going to be a brand new addition to the G League for the upcoming season. And what's it going to be? It's going to be looking to use the Kobe Bryant Mamba Sports Academy as its home base, and the team is basically going to be like these really great high school players who don't want to go to college and. I don't know if they're going to be able to um, have contracts or in terms of have agents to negotiate their contracts. It's going to be somewhere around six figures. They're going to be given full scholarships to gain, to still gain an education. They're going to be training and preparing for the draft in a setting that has the backing and infrastructure of the NBA. So basically, this is going to be like the next level up from playing like at a Mount Verde or an IMG Academy or an Oak Hill or a Huntington Prep or any of these other basketball academies. I remember out here they had um, Finley. The Finley Toyota had this team out here in Vegas that uh, had all these five-star recruits, and um, they're they're kind of they're um, they're done now. But you know these these basketball factories, the Sprite Academy and such. Um, so this is going to be the next level because you know at these high schools in terms of the Mount Verdes and the INGs and such. I mean, you could play for those guys if you're a freshman. R.J. Barrett, he's now playing for the Knicks. He played for Mount Verde when he was a freshman or a sophomore or something like that. Ben Simmons played for Mount Verde. ING Academy, I mean, they have a couple of guys who play for Arizona that's going to be uh, going to the NBA, that declare for the NBA. No, uh, Nico Mannion played in Phoenix, but the other guy, the, the green guy, is going to be, he played at ING and he's going to be declaring for the draft. We all know about the talent that has come out of Oak Hill, uh, Huntington Prep, Andrew Wiggins went there for a year. Uh, this team, uh, Pacific Prolific Prep, out in uh, Napa Valley in California was the team that Jalen Green played for uh, this past season. So I guess what this NBA is trying to do is try to set up this, try to set up this team. I guess that they could go around and. I don't know if they're going to be playing other G League basketball franchises or I don't know exactly what their schedule is going to be looking at. I don't know if they're going to be playing some games overseas against teams. But also, we don't know if this is going to be just players made up of, say, for instance, you know, their first year out of high school because it is supposed to, quote, unquote, get them ready for the NBA draft. Well, I mean, it's also going to be a situation where are you going to have, like, maybe um, a player who is – who had some time in the NBA and maybe he's not playing in the NBA right now. Are you going to have those guys in there to be part of the team? Or are you just going to have nothing but 19 and 20 year olds playing on this team? And if that's the case, 
Are they still going to be able to play the other franchises that are in the G League right now where you're talking about grown men? So you would have these kids basically going up against grown men in these franchises or in the G League. So all of that stuff still needs to be worked out. But, you know, as far as that is concerned for the NBA, maybe it's a situation where, you know, we get them and we kind of train them the way that they want to be trained for when they go to the NBA. But I, I just feel in terms of college would be a better alternative and a better situation. And people sit there and talk about, well, you know, if you go to college for one year, you're only there for six months, and you don't really have to go to school and all of those types of things. I always say that, you know what, anybody who has the opportunity to go to college should take it. Even if it's a situation where you ain't going to do anything and you're just wasting your time and you're only going to be there for six months, I don't care if you're going to be in college for three months, five months, six months, a year. I think that you can always learn something. I think that you can always mature. I think that you can always get yourself ready in terms of, you know, life after the teenage years or as you start your life outside of your mommy's and daddy's house or out of your environment by going to college, even if it's just for six months. Just the ability to have to get up and have the responsibility of getting up and doing some things and finding out how you're going to get your meals and doing and going to class and going to practice or those type of things. I think even if it's for six months and not four years or two years, I think that would be great as far as these guys coming in and doing their profession. I've always, I've always said this, you know, and I'll end it with this. I've always said this about this whole one and done. These guys should go straight to the NBA. They're 18 years old. If you can go off the war, that means you can go make and earn your living. I'm, I'm not one of those who believe in that. You know, I really don't. I think that the NBA, if the NBA says that, you know what, you're not going to be playing basketball until you're 21 years old, that's a rule. That's a law. I mean, the NBA is not restricting teenagers and others to make a living playing basketball. You can go to Australia. You can go to other. There's plenty of professional basketball leagues around the world where you can go and you can play. I mean, who wouldn't want to play in Australia? Who wouldn't want to play in Perth? Who wouldn't want to play in Melbourne? Who wouldn't want to play in Madrid? Who wouldn't want to play in Gaetari? Who wouldn't want to play in Sweden? Who wouldn't want to play in the Netherlands? Who wouldn't want to play in these in these fabulous, wonderful, beautiful cities? So if that's the case and you don't want to go to college, what's the big deal about the NBA saying, no, you know what, if you're going to be in our league, you have to be at least 21 years old. Well, he's good enough to play in the NBA right now. That's great. Well, then just think how much better he'll be when he's 21. It's our rules. Too bad. Playing in the NBA is not a right. It's a privilege. So, you know, you get to grow. You get to mature. So I've always said the best case scenario for myself. I know this is never going to happen, but I would love to have the scenario of the NBA and college basketball and working together. I would love to have it like this. Have a 21 and over age limit to be eligible for the NBA draft. But for those who are going to college and have to play, what, two or three years? The players can be paid for their names and likenesses. The NCAA can implement the Pay for Play Act. So these guys can go to college for two or three years and you can still be paid. Because let me tell you something, man. If players can be earning some money if they play for Kentucky or Kansas or Gonzaga or Creighton or Kansas State, or Duke, or Indiana, or Oklahoma State. These guys can still make money. You can make money out there going to a Stillwater, 
or going to Spokane, Washington, or going to Omaha, Nebraska and playing for the school, or going to uh, Manhattan, Kansas. Okay, you're not going to be making $500,000 or anything like that, but you know what? You'll also get the benefit of not going broke, of having money in your pocket, enough money, more than enough money to get you by and have yourself a good time in college, and you can learn, you can grow, you can mature, so when you are a grown man at 21 and you're eligible for the NBA draft and you have the experience, you have the tutelage, you have the honor, you have the advantage of being coached by great coaches like Coach Krzyzewski and Coach Patrick Ewing and Coach Jay Wright and Coach Bill Self and all these other fantastic coaches. And you have the ability of being on ESPN and Fox Sports and participating in the NCAA tournament to where you're building your brand that way. So by the time you come into the NBA, you could already be mature enough to have the spotlight on you for three years. And you know how to do interviews. You know how to do press conferences. You know how to uh, to work a room. And if you are going to be using your likeness and name to make money, you'll know how to do commercials. You'll know how to act in front of a camera and all those types of things. And you'll have the joy of being in college for three years. Oh, and how about this? You might actually even, oh, I don't know. Find some things you might like in college that can help you mature even more. You might be able to meet your future wife, your sophomore or junior year in college, which you wouldn't be able to do if you didn't go to college at all or if you just stayed for six months or one year. You might find your best friend. You might find something that can be a passion for you once your basketball career is over. Because guess what? A lot of things change for you mentally in terms of what you want to do with your life between the ages of 18 and 21 and 22 years old. Just like those things changes when you're 26 to 32. Just, just like those things changes when you're 52 to 62. So I, I don't see any, any downside of going to college and staying there for a while. I don't see anything like that. And hey, if you want to go ahead and, and if college is not for you, well then go ahead and play in, in, a, in, a, in go ahead and play overseas. You know that's fine. But I think that you need to be 21 and over if you want to get yourself in the NBA. Again, playing in the NBA is a privilege. It's not a right. And for me, I take it a little bit personally because I think given the opportunity, as I mentioned before, everybody should go to college. And that's especially true for black players from impoverished communities. If This is according to the Chronicle of Higher Education. Black students who began college in the fall of 2011 had higher dropout rates and lower six-year completion rates. 46% of public institutions, 57% of private institutions, and any other racial group. Black males pursuing bachelor's degree were most likely among demographic groups to drop out after their freshman year. In the black community, what I'm talking about, we don't make it a point or an emphasis to talk about getting an education. Go getting yourself a higher education. Because sometimes we just kind of latch our dreams on to being able to rap or being able to dance or being able to sell drugs or being able to play play a sport to get us out of the conditions that we're in, to get us out of the communities that we're in, to get us out of the neighborhoods that we in that we're in. Because of that, we have to be great basketball players. Because of that, we have to try to go ahead and achieve something that maybe 1% or point something percent of the human population can achieve. The black community, there's plenty of intelligent black folks out there, untapped talent that can be, that can be um, college graduates. 
And they don't have to go ahead and try to become a basketball player. They don't have to figure the only way that I can get out of my community is to sell drugs or commit crime to do other things. You know, there's a whole other world out there than what's happening in, in, in Inglewood or what's happening out there in Southeast D.C. or what's happening out there in Liberty Heights or what's happening out there in the Fifth Ward in Houston and any, any other ghetto or any city, inner city in the, uh, the United States. There's more to what's going down. There's a whole new world out there. And right now, our community, we still have this ignorant, backwards, ridiculous, ridiculous view of those in the community who want to go ahead and better themselves, who want to go ahead and get themselves an education, who want to go ahead and learn how to speak the English, who want to go ahead and learn how to get that good job. We still see them as sellouts. We still see them as someone who's trying to please the white man. We're still trying to see them as someone who ain't, real, who ain't 100. We're still trying to put them into this, well, you ain't truly black type of bullshit, ignorant nonsense that's been holding us back for decades. You know, we still have that stigma where it should be, you know what, let's start from the beginning to say the NBA is not our ultimate goal. Selling a rap album ain't our ultimate goal. That shows you how old I am, right? Selling a rap album, really. But you know what I'm talking about, being an entertainer, being an actor, being a singer, being a dancer, being something like that. That shouldn't be our main focus in our community. That shouldn't be our main goal. If you have the skills, if you have the talent, if you have the ability to do that, well, then fine, that's great. That also means that, you know what, you're going to be doubly uh, 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 lucky because not only do you have the advantage of being able to make millions of dollars when you're 21, 22 years old to play in the NBA, you'll also have the knowledge of getting yourself a degree. You'll also have the knowledge and the experience of being in a uni universe, of being in a, a, a university or a college that can help you prepare when you're when your basketball playing days or football playing days are over. So I've always thought that, you know, this nonsense about, you know, these kids, all they need to do is they, they want to go ahead and and, and um, try to make it in the NBA and this, that, and the other. Man, try to make it into college. Let's see what we can do to get some, let's see what we can do to try to get some, some, some learned in there. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know, like James Brown said, man, don't, 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 don't give me, uh, I'm watching Raw right now. As James Brown said, don't give me integration. Give me truth, communication. Don't give me sorrow. I want equal opportunity to live tomorrow. Give me school to give me books so I can read about myself and gain my true looks. You know what I'm talking about? That's what we need to do. And look, I'm only speaking about my community because being a black man, that's the community that I'm most interested in. But just even if you're speaking about Appalachian, if you're speaking about any type of poor area concerning white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, you know, Goal, the goal should be trying to see what we can do about um, getting ourselves in college. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this. Hey, you know what? I was bored as hell last Friday, and I started watching the WNBA draft. Yes, I started watching the NBA draft, the WNBA draft. And I got to tell you something. I was kind of interested in that. There are some very uh, attractive young women and young ladies out there that were being drafted because, you know, you had them all dolled up. And I was watching some of the highlights. Man, them women can ball. Them young ladies can ball. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, one thing 
I don't know what the Me Too movement feels about this. I don't know what Janelle Hill or Angela Rye feel about this. I would love to sit down and find out their opinion about this. But, you know, one thing that could be used as the advantage for women is that, you know, go on the fact that, you know, use your beauty, use your looks, use how attractive you are. I still think we live in a world where, you know, as far as women's sports are concerned or just women, anything is concerned, I still feel the more attractive you are, the more opportunities that you get. More than anything else, it's the same thing with men also, but more, especially more when it comes to the women. And especially when you're talking about sports, how do you think Anna Kornikova was able to become a multi-multi multi-millionaire when she was playing? It wasn't because she was winning Grand Slam titles. It wasn't because she was beating Jennifer Capriati and, and uh, Martina, uh, Martina Hingis and the Williams sisters. The woman never even made it to a Grand Slam final. She was the highest paid because she was damn good looking. Even though I said time and time again, I'll take Serena Williams over Anna Kornikova 24 hours a day, eight days a week, 366 days a year. But still, my point is that sex sells. And if you're an attractive woman, and I'm not saying that you need to degrade yourself. I'm not saying in the WNBA, these women need to be playing in bikinis or anything, any type of, type of chauvinistic, idiotic, ridiculous nonsense like that. But I think with the way that the league, these women are getting much more talented. The quality of basketball from when I was watching girls women basketball back in the day about 10, 15, 20 years ago, man, it has gotten a lot better. I mean, these women are just balling. I mean, they are playing some very attractive basketball to watch. And if you can put up, you can put the way some of these young ladies were looking, how beautiful they were, they were beautiful. I was thinking to myself, hey, man, you might get a niche there. Again, sex sells, show off their beauty. Again, don't have them trotted out there looking like whores or street hookers or females who walk up and down Tropicana at 10 o'clock at night out here in Vegas. You know, class, dignity, you know, that type of thing. But, man, they are some good-looking women. And with the improvement of the way that they play, the WNBA, I mean, look, you still have Diana Taurasi and others talking about, you know, for me to make a real paycheck, you know, I have to play basketball. Brianna Stewart and them, I have to go play basketball overseas. Because I make a lot more money playing overseas than I do in the WNBA. If you really want to have the WNBA try to catch up to where you don't have those things happening, hey man, start showing off some of these beautiful young ladies that I saw that were being drafted. They were well-spoken, beautiful smiles. I mean, I was like, wow, man, way to go. Nice job. Now, a lot of them were 6'1", 6'2". That's way too tall for me. I usually like my women somewhere around 5'4", five, 5'7", five, something like that, you know. And plus, they were also too young for me. Them girls were old enough to be my my daughters. So, I mean, yeah, for me, it's something like, you know, 36, 37 at the very least, you know. Give me that 36 to 42 range in terms of, you know, what I'm looking for. But, man, those were some very, very, very pretty girls. And I was very impressed. You know, I was watching a little bit of their highlights and everything. And I was like, man, these girls are balling. They got a little shake, a little drive, a little this and that and the other. Man, very nice. Very nice. So, Good luck to the WNBA, and yeah, let's 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 kind of show off how beautiful the women are, and when they get back on the court, because if they're beautiful like that, that'll at least get the attention, and then you can go ahead and see how well they play, and you start building the audience that way. Just you know, that's the next hurdle I think for something like the WNBA, because for some of the interviews. You know, Holly Rowe was like answering a couple of questions. And it was like, oh, by the way, we have someone who wants to congratulate you on, you know, being in the WNBA. 
and they had Kevin Love and they had um, Kevin Durant and all those type of guys coming in saying, hey, you know, congratulations, it was awesome, it was great. And, you know, these girls were, you know, of course, they were awestruck and like, oh, this is great, you know, my favorite player, this, that, and the other. I want to come to a situation where, you know, when they start listing, when these women start listing who was your favorite player growing up and who was your favorite NBA basketball, or who was your favorite basketball player growing up, who got you into the sport, instead of saying something like a LeBron James or a Kobe Bryant or something like that, I want to hear them say someone like a Cheryl Swoops or a Tina Tina Chomp Thompson or um, a girl from, um, or, or Diana Taurasi or somebody like that. Let's start having these females along with possibly saying, hey, you know what, I, you know, along with Jason Taylor or, you know, along with some of these other James Harden and Russell Westbrook, I mean, they also sparked my interest in becoming basketball players. But my main people who I wanted to strive and be like were like Mandy Moore and uh, Diana Taurasi and, and Brianna Stewart and all these other females. That's going to be a great time. And I'm not blaming these women when they talk about male basketball players being their favorite. I'm not saying that as a criticism to them, but I mean, in terms of the evolution and the pathway for women, you know, gaining their strength and gaining that seat at the table that they so well deserve right next to the men calling the shots just as much as the men do in our society and in our world. I think that's going to be the next hurdle where it's going to be very nice when you start seeing these young girls, maybe in the next five, 10 years, talk about some of my favorite basketball players, more Dallin Staley or someone like that in terms of start naming women basketball players who played in the WNBA. That was their reason, their inspiration to become basketball players more than say uh, guys in the NBA. But you know, time will tell and it takes time, but uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Good job for the WNBA on that point. All right. That is enough for me. I am done. Who am I watching here on raw? I don't know. Who am I watching? Bunny Murphy. You know, Bunny Murphy was, uh, Bunny Murphy was engaged to Alexa Bliss. Bunny Murphy, what are you doing? I don't know the inner workings of that relationship, but man, is Alexa Bliss, that's my sweetheart, man. That woman is fantastic. She's too young for me, but boy, man, if I was Bunny Murphy, ain't no fucking way I would let her go. If I have to give up wrestling, I'm giving it up. If I have to, whatever I have to, Whatever I have to do, if I'm Buddy Murphy, I ain't give. I don't know who he's seeing now or whatever. But man, it would be tough to be someone like Alexa Bliss. That woman is an absolute beautiful sweetheart. Alexa Kaufman, aka Alexa Bliss, she is absolutely fantastic. So I talked about Mandy Rose, talked about Sonya Deville, talked about uh, who else? I talked about. I talked about Alexa Bliss. I didn't even mention Charlotte Flair, Naomi, or the man. The man who's going to watch is she still engaged to the Seth Rollins? The man. The man. I'll take Alexa Bliss. You leave my Alexa Bliss alone. That's my, that's my sweetheart right there, boy. I tell you, I love her like a, like a, mm, love her like a, like a daughter or whatever. That's how old I am. All right. So that's enough for me. I would like to thank everybody for listening to the program. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. Rates. Spotify, iTunes, all this other stuff. Do what you need to do. Let's keep this thing growing. And uh, I'll see you when I see you. I'll talk to you when I talk to you. Be good. Be safe. Be smart. Do what we need to do to get back to uh, doing the things that were normal to us because I am itching. I am yearning to earn a paycheck. I am itching and yearning to get back and see my friends. I am itching and yearning to get back to some semblance 
of what normal life was before the pandemic went wild. So be safe, be smart, pay attention, get these motherfuckers who are out there protesting, talking about freedom of rights, get those stupid motherfuckers off of the streets, and let's see what we can do. If we're not going to be able to do this as a group, let's see what we can do individually to get back to normalcy. Music!